Hey, Jeff. Hey, Eric. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Back in New York City after a 10-day vacation with our brother Dan down in Arizona and Utah while we visited the national parks. Yeah, a lot of people might wonder, hey, you guys don't seem like the outdoorsy type. No. You guys don't hang out with snakes? (laughs) Just generally speaking, we don't. Hawks? No. Falcons? None of that. What are you doing going to Utah and Arizona in the dead of August where there is heat? Yeah. And there is sun? Yeah. And there is outdoors? Yeah. Well, you know what? I didn't know the definition of a vacation. I hadn't taken one in 10 years. So Mm -hmm. I thought that that was the way to go. And to Utah and Arizona, we went to the land of... uh, it's not the land of enchantment. Land um, of Mormons. It is the land of Mormons. We got to enjoy wildlife. We got to enjoy the scenery. We got to hike up and down into canyons through water, through red dirt and normal dirt, and amongst just the most unbelievable rock formations. You know, I, I kept saying to you that it was like art except natural, and I don't know if that makes me sound basic, but... No, you sound like a real ranger. It, a New York ranger? You sound like Mike Richter. It was a little overwhelming at, at times. You you see your place in the world, and you consider how small you may be, mm-hmm. and you realize, too, within the continental United States how different every corner of this place is, and true beauty mm. and i i just loved it and we had a great time the three of us i we, will say this this sounds a little bit like smokes uh weed once well you know it's like we we got out of this what a college <laughs> freshman gets out of like smoking weed in their dorm room you know what i really enjoyed it i had a, yeah. I had a great time down there and i had a great time with you guys i i would say it was a a win for all of us because we didn't get killed mm-hmm. we didn't get pulled over we mm-hmm. didn't get hurt we didn't hurt anyone we didn't poison ourselves we didn't get lost we didn't get sunburnt wait <laughs> how are you gonna put get killed and get sunburnt in the same thing sun poisoning oh yeah you know? that is true sun poisoning jeff yeah, i didn't want to die via sun <laughs> but you know what we had enough water we had enough snacks just the right amount of snacks mm-hmm. which was great we didn't fall off any cliffs mm-hmm. everyone should go check out our pictures at instagram.com slash it's the real they were a lot of fun to, at the end of the day, choose between all the pictures that the three of us yeah, took. Yeah, because we, we took like thousands. So many pictures. I wanted to do a series of ones that were outtakes, mm-hmm. ones that were bad, because we put so many nice pictures up. But there weren't that many bad ones. No, not. there was. It was honestly the best time. It was such a fun vacation. I suggest that anybody who has not been to the Southwest and really taken in mountains like that should go down there and uh, take advantage because it's, it's just I want to get sponsored once by in a Utah. Lifetime. Oh, yeah? I think that, that I think we're real close to getting sponsored by Utah. I'm down. I'm down. If Utah wants to sponsor this podcast or Two Jews and Two Black Dudes Review the Movies, um, that would be great. Yeah. Also, shouts to Carl Malone and his various car dealerships. I almost said Carl de- dealerships. Carl dealerships. Oh, see, that sounds like gets high once. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Carl dealerships. <laughs> you ever think about it? Carl dealership. Man. <laughs> we had the best time down there. Thanks to everyone who checked in on us, made sure we were still all right. We're back in New York City, and we're really excited because today, right now, available everywhere, is the number one book on the blank sheet music charts on amazon.com rhyme book by it's the real 
and Carl <laughs> Malone. Go get your copy. It's you guys who launched us to the top of the charts. Let's keep it up there and let's shock the world and get on other charts. Carl. The non-fiction charts. Malone. The fiction charts. Dealerships. The... Historical fiction. Yeah, historical Cooking. fiction ones. Maps. Yeah. Do they have a map chart? I wish, Absolutely. I wish they did. Map guys, chart. go get Rhyme Book. It's a blank lined notebook with a lot of it's the real original material in there it's so dope it's ready for school it's ready for not school it's ready for whatever you want to use it for it looks dope it feels dope it is dope look smart yeah go get rhyme book at it's the dot com dot carl also i want to say because we're back in new york city that one month from today we're gonna be or one month from yesterday yeah October 3rd. One month from every day. We will be at Highline Ballroom here in New York City with our friends Styles P and Sheik Looch. And you guys should join us as we do a live version of Two Jews and Two Black Dudes Review the Movies. We're going to be watching a movie with you guys. And you should go get your tickets right now before they sell out. It's thereal.com. Jeff, who's on the podcast today? Carl <laughs> Dealership. Um, Rob Stone is on the podcast. Rob Stone, who you guys may or may not know, is behind the Fader and Cornerstone Agency, which is uh, a big deal in music and has been a big deal in marketing and advertising for a good 20 years. Yeah, a great 20 years. It's a great 20 years. Rob is a a fascinating guy, someone who we met down at South by Southwest this Mm -hmm. year. And we didn't know his whole story. DJ Enough was like, yo, you have to get him on the podcast. And so we did. And here he is today. But Rob's story is so good because obviously he's had his hand in a lot of huge hip hop moments. Yeah. Over the past 20 some odd years. Like really big. Yeah. But also as a human story. Yeah. As a personal story. Yeah. You know, I mean, because listen, we're two guys who love discussing like industry, behind the scenes, machinations and stuff like that. Which there's a lot of. Yeah. But... I think that what Rob has overcome in terms of his health and in terms of, you know, being a devoted son yeah. and all of these things and, and, and coming from, you know, totally outside the industry to get to where he is today. Mm-hmm. Not putting all those three things on the same level, but, you know, here's somebody who has overcome a lot to get to where he is today. I think it's just very impressive. It's super impressive, especially considering he's a giant of a man. And for him to come up here and sit down with us and be so open and honest about his journey is really wonderful for us to hear. And we're so happy to share it with all of you guys. So Rob Stone from The Fader, from Cornerstone on the podcast today. Jeff, I know that you've had a lot of time to think about the podcast that you want to recommend to people. What podcasts do you want them to hear? I want to recommend number 69 and also number 200 with Naomi Zeichner. Oh, shout out to Naomi Zeichner. Yeah, so episode 200, you guys heard Naomi interview us, but we got a chance to interview her on episode 69. She is uh, the former editor-in-chief of The Fader. She's from Georgia. She doesn't really have a Georgian accent. No. But... She's had a great, great, great story in terms great, of... Great, 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 great. Yeah, great stuff. <laughs> she, she's had a great story because she went from, uh, you know, going to summer camp and selling... Uh, Mid. <laughs> yeah, shitty weed down in Georgia to moving up to New York City, working as a barista, and then finding her way in the media space to, again, be the editor-in-chief of Fader and now be such an influential and amazing force at YouTube. 
Uh, I would say number 127, Daytuan Thomas. Shout out to Daytuan Thomas, who we saw most recently in Cleveland, Ohio, when we were out there for the Jay and Beyonce tour. And Daytuan's not just one of the greatest human beings you're ever going to find, but also is like Forrest Gump in terms of being everywhere with everyone. Yeah. His he Chris is, Tucker and Barack Obama story is incredible. Like, oh my god, it's just crazy. I was gonna say incredible and crazy at the same time. Carl, crazy. Carl Malone <laughs> dealerships. <laughs> um, I would also say number thirty-three, Shea Serrano. Shout out to Shea Serrano. Hey, shout out to Shea Serrano. Yeah, just in general, what a what a great human being, and not just because he recommended us to Abrams Books to make Rhyme Book, our book that's available right now. That is number one yeah, the on blank the blank music, music. <laughs> yeah. charts. But also, Shay is just, as everybody knows, one of the greatest human beings, and he's raising a great family, he and his wife, and he's done great work for The Ringer and written two New York Times best-selling books and is just a good soul. And if you want to hear how he became that good person, please listen to episode 33 with Shay Serrano. Jeff. When do you want to get into this podcast? Right now. Yo, what up? It's Eric, a.k.a. Ventriloquist Dummy, a.k.a. Say Less. Yo, what up? It's Jeff, a.k.a. Run Up on Forrest Gump, a.k.a. Bench Press. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yo, you I've literally been, jumped back. I've been outmatched. <laughs> <laughs> I did not expect that. I thought it was going to be like, hey, like we had a good conversation we did. before the mics yeah. went on. And no. I am Rob Stone. Yep. And it is a privilege and a pleasure to be here. We talked about it for a while. We are honored, honored actually no, to have you here. You. By the way, this is a waste of time, but this is the real. <laughs> <laughs> oh Rob, what's happening? Everything's cool. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yo, so I, I want to start off with the fact that when we confirmed that you were going to come up here and do this interview, you sent us an email and attached a picture of Biggie mm. that you took. Mm. Where is that picture from? Mm. That was 1994. It was right when we went on the road. It was the Big Mac tour. I'm tapping the table. No, no, yeah. <laughs> I was advised not to hit the table. New York energy. That's right. Um, but yeah, and we were visiting KML San Francisco. We were up at the radio station, and um, it was Craig was there and Big was there. And at the time, Craig's Flavor in Your Ear was a bigger record than what Big had going on, and Big was just kind of this Brooklyn cool dude <laughs> hanging with like Craig, who was like this loud, uh, vociferous, you know, loudmouth in a sense, and excited. His record, Flavin' Year, was hot, and Big was just sitting there, and there were all these stickers like on the back of the wall. I came yell where all the artists and all the label people put stickers up, and I just took the picture of Big, and it's like my favorite photo. It's of the so guy. dope. Do you have it like framed anywhere? Is it something that you just have on your digital archives, or what is it? Um, no, I have the print of it, but mm -hmm. it's in a draw with about 20 other pictures that I've never done anything with that we will do something with. We've, I've posted a few of them and you can see them on my Instagram, but, uh, yeah, no, it's an amazing, spending time with Big was just like, I, I always felt like I was, I guess the, the way to describe it is if you walked into a restaurant and you saw like Michael Jordan, you know, like it's kind of like overwhelming, like, oh my God, that's Michael Jordan. Like that's how I always felt around Big working with him. And so. that's early. That was early. That's you just early could big. tell the way he carried himself. And he was cool. He made you feel cool. But um, overall, just he had this presence that you just, it was like this intensity. But like, he liked that fun. It was just a lot of cool things with, with Big. Where are you originally from? I was born in Brooklyn. Whereabouts? Um, like 
Ocean Parkway, Avenue R. My my dad went to Erasmus High School. My mom went to Lincoln High School. Oh man! Um, and then when I was one, they moved to Long Island. So, so South Shore, Long Island. So that's where you get the accent. From. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. the Long Island accent. Okay, appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> you are more you're more Long Island than you are Brooklyn. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But I still I carry the Brooklyn. Did your parents me. ever lose the Brooklyn? No, my yeah. dad. I mean, my dad was like. Hard-nosed dude, you know, played football for Erasmus, um, had a warehousing trucking company in East New York, Brooklyn. Mm. Uh, you know, it, I worked there in the summers. Like, it taught me a lot about life and, and what he did. Um, but, yeah, my, Brooklyn was, like, really important to me. And, you know. What part of Long Island plays a part in your life? The good part. <laughs> the Billy Joel part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Th- no, I mean, seriously, the, probably the part where, like, when Rakim came out, like oh, I just was so like I just smooth as a violin, rough enough to break New York from Long Island. Like yeah. I remember when I first started working in the city and I was living with my dad, you know, that commute, I would listen to that record and had dreams of like, wow, I can make it in this city. But it was like those type of records that did it. Just you or you have any siblings? I have a sister. Older, older? sister, great sister. And yeah. how, how much older is she than you? Three years. Okay. So you guys grew up together, you went to school together. Yep. What was she like growing up? She was really cool. She was she wasn't into hip hop at all. I was kind of it was interesting. Um, the cutoff was like my generation was like the first generation really getting into hip hop. It was kind of weird um, the separation, but it was like noticeable. Like I was really into it young, and her friends come over like they had no idea what it was. <laughs> like, it was really interesting. So she was listening to like rock or rock. Yeah. yeah. And what did I don't remember what though, what but, what yeah. did she pass down to you like in terms of cool. She might not have been the one passing me cool, okay. But she she taught me how to. She she was just she was great because she let me hang out with her friends. Sometimes they were mean to me, sometimes they weren't. But when you're hanging out with girls that are three years older than you, and you're like a young kid, <laughs> yeah, there's something cool about that. So, totally, yeah, it was fun. And well, then who did uh, pass like cool down to you? I think probably playing basketball, like sports. Sports were a really big part of my life. Played soccer and basketball and. And just like guys like, you know, Stan Emerson that were like bringing in music and had the boombox and Tim McCullough and just guys on my team that Al Reese that I became, you know, tight with. And, you know, we played against some tough schools. We played against Hempstead and Rob Moore, who ended up playing for the Jets. He was, yeah. you know, forward on, on their team. And went to Syracuse. Too. Yeah, yeah. Went to Syracuse. So, um, yeah, it was like moments like that and just, you know, kind of being around you know, culture, I think that brought the cool to me. Also, what was... And what I'm did, not that cool, trust no, me, I, but <laughs> I can appreciate... Totally. Cool. Well, what did, what did football mean to you in terms of structure and in terms of, like, leadership, in terms of, like, teamwork? Well, I wasn't allowed to play football. I played basketball and soccer. Well, then never so, mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but basketball did. Like, I was the point guard. I was little. Um, I developed late. I remember I asked my coach out of embarrassment if I could wear a t-shirt under my, you know, jersey because, mm-hmm. like, I really wasn't developed. And, you know, I was a good ball player. I was tough. But mm-hmm. um, he let me wear the t-shirt because it was a rule not to wear the t-shirt, but he let me wear the t-shirt. But, yeah, I played my, you know, my ass off. And mm-hmm. we, we had a good team. And, yeah, I ran points. So I think it taught me a lot about the pressure and understanding that stuff. What was your uh, team nickname? 
our mascot Lawrence High School. I'm, I, I don't know. Mm. Oh, the tornadoes. Oh, for a second I was going to be the like, golden what tornadoes. Are you making this all up? <laughs> <laughs> go- Look, I'm old. I'm getting up there, but yeah, well, there's the golden tornadoes. So, and uh, if I'm wrong, somebody will check. Yeah, me, no, no, I, totally, I, totally. I think it was the Lawrence Golden Tornadoes. So, but you can see with the golden tornadoes why you might not remember it. It's yeah, not like the yeah. coolest mascot. Are tornado. you kidding? That seems. I like, think it's a pretty good one. Yeah, that's yeah. one that like definitely sticks in your head. Yeah, you're right. not just like everyone else, the Huskies or right, like you right. know, yeah, Tigers or yeah. In high school, you're working for your dad. Yes. What kind of job is that? Summer loading and unloading trucks yeah. in East New York, tough, 120-degree warehouse right by – it was on Atkins Avenue in East New York right by the city dump. Mm. So, like, when you saw rats, like, the rats were, like, <laughs> Huge. cats. Yeah. And there was, there was a guy who worked for my dad named Davey Fox. Great name for chasing rats, I guess. <laughs> but he used to – he had these big bins, and he would put, like, his leftover food in the bin at night. And in the morning when he came in, there'd be a rat that went in there for it but couldn't get out of the bin because it was like these deep bins. Yeah. And he would beat the shit out of them with a bat. And then he'd nail them up on the wall. He had like seven or eight rats. A on collection? The, yeah, a collection <laughs> of rats. East New York rats. Yeah. Like they don't make New Yorkers like they used to. <laughs> no. Because that's like some real like sociopath behavior. Yeah. 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 Forget football. This is where you learn, you know, to yeah. become a man. Like, you know. It was. The warehouse was like, that was the real deal. Like. Loading, unloading trucks. Killing rats. Yeah, yeah, killing yeah. rats. Long days. Long days. Do crazy you miss days. the old New York? I do. I do. I, I'm i not tired of this New York. Like, I still love it. And I, I realize that every time I leave the city, I can't wait to get back to yeah. it. But it's not... I do miss the old New York. Were you were you driving the trucks? I was driving the high-low. Oh, like okay. The high-lows that lifted. And yep. I got really good at that, but... Um, one of the biggest fights I had with my dad was because he would be there late. Everyone would leave. And then I would go, I was 15, 16 years old. I'd have fun with the high lows. And I used to do these like spin outs and 360s. <laughs> and he caught me and he got. And he it, nailed you up on, he he next to the rats. Yeah. He did, yeah, yeah. Baby <laughs> fo- he did be foxed. Right. So was there an expectation from your dad that maybe you would go into the family business? There was. Um, but I think he knew he wanted me to do more. He knew how hard he worked. And that was like. Look, he was in business for 50 years. His thing was, I never missed a payroll. He did it himself. He was independent. But he was, you know, he was the hardest working person I've ever met um, and, and taught me so much about life and dealt with the underworld. I mean, he was in Brooklyn in the trucking days of like the 70s and 80s when he started this company. And like, you know, I've seen... Territorial. Yeah, I've yeah. seen stuff that makes guys in the music industry look like teddy bears and the <laughs> music industry could be rough yeah. like honestly like, yeah. there's some real dudes in the music industry but when you're dealing with like trucking in the streets of brooklyn in the 70s and 80s it was That's real no, deal. no joke yeah. yeah like i know how tough you guys are well yes yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. From the streets in they, new york you know, yeah, you, know? Yeah. <laughs> so you ever seen the warriors <laughs> I, know, yeah. I have so yeah. have i yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> great so yeah. you so you get your work ethic from your father absolutely but were you did you have a creative side in high school I, I mean, again, I was I was really into hip hop mm-hmm. and like loved hip hop and and probably um, wrote rhymes I shouldn't have written because I wasn't very good. Okay, and, you know, when I got out of school, um, I managed a guy that you guys know who was in a rap group. Who he he was he was actually good and could have had a career, but Drew Ha, big up to Drew Ha, yeah, totally. Yeah. But I managed him when he was in college in, in a rap group, and he had a partner who was incredible. But they kind of didn't make it past that first yeah. first year. Where'd you go to uh, college? 
I went to Albany, University of Albany. The uh, biggest party, party school. school. Yeah. yeah, it was back then, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was cool. Uh, was there any thought that you would go anywhere else besides Albany? I didn't take applying to college seriously. Like, mm-hmm. I just didn't... I don't know why. Like, mm-hmm. I, uh, my friends did, and friends went to Syracuse and to Penn and to, like, some great schools. Albany was honestly, like... I think 800 bucks a semester. Mm-hmm. It was close to home. Yeah. It was a good school. I got in. I did well on my, you know, regents or whatever it was back then mm-hmm. and just decided to go there. And what, did you know what you wanted to go for? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. But I ended up doing business, you know, marketing and uh yeah, business and finance degree. And was that like something that you like ended up being like caring about or was that something where you were like, okay, my dad has his own business and maybe I should I was always entrepreneurial. Like, mm-hmm. I start when I was in high school, I, I got the bug, I think, from my dad. And then, like, the cool bug I got from one of my sister's boyfriend. Maybe this is, we could attribute it to my sister. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to her. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Was promoting parties in the city. Really? And he's like, hey, take these, you know, flyers. Like, back in the day, like, covers to get into clubs were like 20, 30 bucks or whatever. He's like, take 200 flyers, initial them, you know, with your initials put them out in stores, give them out to people in the city, and uh, I'll give you two bucks a flyer that comes in. I remember, yeah, I was like 16. Yeah. And I went into the city, went to Studio 54 with him, and he ended up giving me like 100 bucks for the night, and I was like, whoa. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that kind of like ignited the bug about the club, and I started doing clubs in the city, in in college, when I got up to Albany, I started doing like regular night up at college, took the door, brought like four or five hundred the students to like certain bars wow. and, and cut deals with the owners. So Albany's popping. Albany was popping with Fat Cat. <laughs> yeah. It was like the club. Yeah, that was the place. Sure, so, you remember that, but not yeah. the Golden Tornado. No, yeah. No. How did sort of college shape who you are today? College was college was interesting because you're on your own, you know, and you just it, and just you find out a lot about yourself, and you mm-hmm. go through your ups and downs. You go through great times. Um, I played soccer for a little bit up there. Um, in my sophomore year, I had to leave college because I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. Yeah. So, so what symptoms were like leading up to that? And then like when you find out that there's like an actual diagnosis to it, is that like a relief that there's like a name for what you have or great question? So I was, I was in the best shape of my life. I I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I was playing, you know, sport, playing soccer up at college. And, uh, I came home for one of the holidays and as I'm leaving, I'm like, Dad, by the way, I have, like, this swollen lump. You know, what do I do about it? And, like, I just remember the look he gave me, like, are you a fucking moron? Like, yeah. you know, looking at me, and I was, like, getting back in my car to go to school. He's like, we, we got to deal with that. So he, he came up that week, and he found a surgeon up in Albany. Um, and I had surgery, and they took it out. And honestly, like, wasn't thinking anything about it. I thought, okay, they took it out. It was, like in my groin, like, leg area. So I just told everybody I had knee surgery because I just didn't want to deal with, like, explaining what was going on. And uh, the following week, I was registering for classes for the next semester, and my dad was in my dorm room, and I'm, like, with my best friend. I'm, like, what are you doing here? He's, like, oh, we just have to go get the stitches out, you know, today, and I just wanted to take you. I'm, like, you don't have to come up here. And I would, like... Didn't think anything of it. Didn't think anything of it. We go for, you know, lunch with my friend, and my friend's, like, my dad, you know, he called him Chuck. His name was Charles Stone, but he's like, Chuck, let me go get the car. He goes to get the car. My dad was a no-bullshit guy. <laughs> and my dad just looks at me. It's great. Like, good question, by the way. But he just looks at me. He's like, look. He's like, 
the uh, lump you have is cancerous. Like, just boom. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, we don't know what it means yet. You're going to have to go through tests. But what they took out is cancerous. So we got to deal with it. I was like, okay. He's like, your mom doesn't know yet. And he's like, but let's go to the doctor. Hear what he has to say. And then you'll have to call your mom. So went to the doctor. The doctor explained we have to run tests and do more like what we took out, whatever was cancerous. So I had to leave school, go to Memorial Sloan Kettering in the city and do all like horrible tests, like all kinds of bone marrow and all this stuff. But you go through this stuff, like your question of like, was it a relief? Like, I didn't believe it. Right. Like I went into the mode of, I don't believe I'm sick because I don't feel sick. And I was like, I was 19. I was invincible. Right. Like, you don't, you just don't even think about it. So when I had to go through all these tests and everything, that's when it starts hitting you. Like you're going into the hospital, you're with sick people, you're, you know, this and that. So then when they finally figured out what it was and how to treat it, which was like going to be five weeks of radiation treatment, five days a week, mm. um, you know, that's the reality. And you start like on a Monday and every morning at 7 a.m., my mom or my dad would take me into the city. I go to Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, and then you go, <laughs> you, go into the, you go into the dressing room, and it's like this locker, and there's just people with cancer getting, putting on these robes. It's like the most morbid, horrible experience. Yeah. And like, you just, you're confronted with like overnight. Like It happens pretty quickly. And I had to leave school for the most exciting part of it. So I'm putting on my robe, and... I'm just like, I can't believe this is going on. And then they like direct you to where you have to wait. And it's like this room with like 40 chairs and 30 sick people in it. Like everyone has cancer. And everybody's just silent. Miserable. Yeah. Of course. You're like, online. Well, yeah. You're waiting for your, your radiation, which is radiation to yeah, like, kill cells. Yeah. So it's killing good cells and bad cells. Right. The, so. the, the vest that you're wearing will not let the radiation into certain parts of your body, right? Yes. Yeah. So... But I never went into the sick room, into the waiting room. And they used to yell at me. And I'm like, I'm not. Like, part of my mental way of approaching it was, okay, they're saying I'm sick. I'm going to go in and do what they say I have to do to be well. But I don't believe I'm really sick and I'm not going to act sick. I'm going to do, I'm going to continue with my life. And I'd stand in the uh, hallway and i watch, like, the construction guys were like building out it's a, it's a very good business the cancer business oh. if you guys haven't noticed so they were like building like new buildings and oh wings so I'm, I'm like watching these guys build and i'm standing in the hallway with my at the time it was uh the sony walkman yeah and like a cd or whatever but that shit helped me and that i think made me that made me realize how much i loved hip-hop because it was like ll cool j the beastie boys run dmc and like you just you put that mindset on, you know, of like a Mike Tyson, Ice, and I'm a soldier at war, I'm making sure, you know, like all those lyrics, I'm the king of rock, like that would get me through that hour of misery of dealing with it, and give me the strength to just have, you know, walk a little different from the locker room to the room. I'm sorry, this, what year is this? Like eighty-seven. Eighty-seven. Yeah, I, I, it's not yeah. like I was there. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 yeah. I was just trying to think like when those lyrics yeah. might be from. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Had you dealt with uh, death or those extreme life changing experiences uh, prior in your life? Just my grandparents when I was probably thirteen. But that's not like a that's 
how it should be. Right, right. You know, and it's sad and it's hard. I had great grandparents, and but I don't. It didn't hit me like that. It didn't hit me until the following year. I was on campus, and there was a really nice guy that I grew up with. Um, that was a year older than me, and someone's like, "Oh, did you hear Dougie Cohn has cancer?" And I remember he has can't like it hit me like like I realized what everyone else was hearing when they heard that you know Rob Stone has cancer because it didn't hit me like I didn't buy into it in a way. So when I heard he had cancer and it was like serious and it was lymphoma, I just remember sitting like by myself, being like, "Wow, I I I really dodged a bullet like that." And then like six weeks later, you know, sadly Doug passed. Mm. That's when it was like, holy shit, like this was, I didn't realize how serious, and, and don't get me wrong, like the daily routine, like you literally, you're wearing this horrible robe, and they call your name, and I had two great technicians at the hospital, but like you walk down the hallway, and like they walk you into a room that has like the hazmat signs on it, you know, the door's like two feet thick, the glass is thick, I'd go into the room, and they laid me on a it's like an x-ray table, like a bed. They like set me up. They put kind of like the vests on me and like protect areas. And then uh, they're like, okay, we're going to walk out. They walk out of the room and they go behind this glass. That's like this industrial, really thick glass. Like obviously they don't want any of the radiation they're about to give me. And like all, all you hear is this like, and like this big door that you can't see because I'm just looking up and you can't move you know, shuts behind me. And then I see them out of the corner of my eyes and all of a sudden this big like x-ray machine comes down over me like and like locks into place. There's like infrared lights going across to like line up coordinates. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, they radio in. They're like, okay, don't move. You know, don't, don't breathe. Don't move too much. And then 30 seconds, it's just like and you're just getting zapped. You just hear it. And nothing, there's nothing going on. You just hear it. And you're like sitting there going like, I can't believe this shit. Like it's a, it's, it's surreal. And um, I did that for, it was supposed to be five weeks. And then in the third week, as I'm like halfway through, they're like, we're gonna have to do two more weeks, which is like an eternity, you know, well, like. Yeah, why? Just it wasn't reacting the way they thought and whatever, but you get through it. So how were those drives every morning from Long Island to Sloan Kettering? Um. I have the best parents in the world. Like they, <laughs> like they got me through it. Like and my sister. Like mm -hmm. it's probably harder on them not having it than on the person who has it. Right. right. And it's hard. On, and it was hard on me. You know what I mean? But um, but yeah, they were incredible. But it sucked. It's, yeah. You know, I would be. The funny thing is, I was promoting a party at this place called Sprats on the Water on Saturdays. So come Friday night, I was fine. Saturday night, fine. Come Sunday night. And when you're like third grade, you get that sick feeling, or fifth grade, you had to go back to school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was, I'd start, it was like psychosomatic. I'd start getting sick again. But I lost like, I was like 200 pounds at the time. I lost 30 pounds in six weeks. I just couldn't eat. I, I was eating Lucky Charms. That's all that appealed to me. Holy cow. So, and they offered me, you know, medicinal marijuana at the time because my stomach was getting treated. But again, I didn't smoke. I probably should have. <laughs> So well, yeah, yeah, now you would do like CBD and just right. like a yeah. ton of it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Also, I mean, technology since then is just like crazy in every yeah. sense of you know the, yeah, the, the it's, word. It's changed a lot. I mean, it is it is amazing, and they saved my life. But I think I think it, it put so many things in perspective for me, you know. And again, 
it, it really showed me like my like how powerful music can be. And I think I knew I knew I loved music, but going through that and having the motivation from like the lyrics of of that and like if you like it made me listen to music different, like everything, you know. So it's just like it was an incredible experience. And is and is put it this way. The thing I tell, like, think to myself, like, there's no meeting I could go into today that's worse than walking into that room. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing that even comes close to it. So, like, going into like a boardroom or meeting with, you know, big client, like, it's it's a piece of cake. Yeah. You know? So it's just like, in some twilight zone way, I I don't think I'd say I'm happy I went through it, but it's made me such a better person and un- understand so much more about life when you have no control over the outcome. All you can do is prepare yourself, you know, for what you're going through and, and be as strong as you can. We're getting deep. And yeah, so, I know. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what you guys do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny. Surreal. The ones that you, the, the episodes that you think are going to be, like, super funny usually end up not being, like, super funny. I'm not funny. <laughs> you guys are funny. <laughs> no, but, like, but like you know, we you know that you have, like, a rich history in, like, yeah. in the music industry, yeah. but I think that, like, it, it's funny how conversations will just, like, you yeah. know, take right. certain turns. But, like, I think that's what makes you guys great is that I think your eye contact, like, no one can see you, but your eye contact, like, you guys are really interested um, or and, good and at pretending. It, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. No, but that's really Especially what it is. Especially when you said, how was football when I said I played soccer <laughs> yeah. and basketball? Yeah. That's well, like a good one. Eric I meant like yeah, European, European football. football. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. exactly. That's right. Um, but so you have to go back to school. And yeah. are, at that point, are you just like, who gives a shit? Like, you know, like, does, does school even matter when you go back? It's, it's, it, it did matter. But it was a different, everything was different. Like how I looked at things was so much different. And some things I took more serious, and, but I did more of what interested me, I think. You know, like I looked at it differently. Um, so I probably partied harder than I did before. Do you know what I mean? Like because I you had a second sort of... Yeah, it's like, I sca- you know, I dodged the bullet. Like I really did. Like, um, So yeah, it's just like... It's it, it messes with your head on some levels. Um, I had a, a scare because they give you five years till they'll say you're cured, like right. going to remission for five years. Of course, two years, like to the day, it was like two years and I'm like graduating. So it was my senior year. Like I feel a lump under my arm and I'm like, fuck, like I'm going to have to leave school again. So I call my dad. I'm like, I just felt something. I'm like, don't tell mom. Like, I, you know, that... That was rough. One of the roughest things was when I first had to get on the phone the day I found out and my mom knew and I had to make believe I was good. And I was like, that's a tough conversation. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. But this time I'm like, let's not tell mom. I'll come into the city. Let's go. So we, we and we were like pros at this point. So like, you know, we went in, saw the doctor. He's like, look, you have 10 days or two weeks left to school. Go. But if you if you're not freaked out that you have like this lump and I'm like, I'm not sick, like I'm good. And. My dad wanted me to do it like the next day. And I'm right. like, let me go back to school. I'll be back here in two weeks. They took it out. It wasn't cancerous. And, Thank God. You know, yeah. So. And so when did you know you turned the corner? I mean, they give you five years. So I get, but it wasn't on my mind. Like, you don't think about those things when you're 19, 20 years old. Mm-hmm. But also when you don't have any symptoms. Yeah. Like, it's not like you were like throwing up every right. morning and just ignoring it. Right. Like, I was throwing up from the radiation and stuff like that. Well, yeah, that, but I'm but, saying, but right. like, not from the lump. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 
So when and you, you, and you know what's the crazy, really crazy about the whole thing? The reason I didn't think the lump was a big deal. Think about this. I was 19. When I was 13, I was, I had in the same place this flare-up. It was a lymph node. It was a lump. Yeah, yeah. I had this, like, incredible doctor I went to. You know, that was my podiatrist or whatever. And um, I showed him the lump, and he's like, let me see your sneakers. Okay, like, this is like old-school Brooklyn doctor. <laughs> yeah. It's like, let me see your sneakers. Takes the sneaker. <laughs> take your sock off. There's a rash on the side of my foot. He's like, let me see your sneaker. He looks at the sneaker. It was in a less tennis sneaker that I was wearing. Yeah. And I stopped wearing a less after that. But he's like, you're allergic to the dye in the sneaker. Stop wearing the sneaker. This is a result of the rash on your foot. You'll be fine. Holy Week shit. Late, right? So when I got the same lump six years later, I'm like, oh, it, it's nothing. Like, it's I didn't think anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Exactly. Unless it's revenge. Or the doctor, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, but I didn't think anything of it, so... That's um, wild. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. By so, the way, should I stop wearing a less? Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, I just started. I, yeah. you, you know what? We don't. Want, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm sure they changed their dye. I'm sure <laughs> the rules are a little different. I hope from yeah, the right. 70s to you yeah. Know. Well, shouts to a less. They're a proud sponsor of this <laughs> podcast. Yeah. So you graduate college? Yes. What is the plan after that? Uh, I didn't I, look. I went. I knew I, I couldn't conform to like real jobs and they, they had like career days on campus and I remember being set up like one of my business advisors was like, oh, you should do the career day. And it was like, I swear to God, I think it was like Macy's <laughs> management program. Like they're on camp and everyone was like freaking out to do it. I'm like, I want to do like ma- management at like a department store. Not that there's anything wrong with of course, it. It wasn't for me. Well, yeah, right. Yeah. So I had to get it, like, put a suit on. I had to go buy, like, a tie. Like, I was miserable in the whole process. And I remember going, and I was, like, sitting there going, like, I don't want to, like, this isn't going to be my, like, life. That's not what I want to do. Like, I have to figure something else out. Um, so a friend of mine and, 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 and myself, we started, like, what are we going to do? And we didn't, we didn't have the guts to do anything really illegal. But, like, <laughs> we'll bend the law a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. So we started selling jewelry on the beach. And I don't know if you, you know Jones Beach? Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, like fields one, two, three, four, five, six, and they're massive beaches with thousands of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's the guys selling chip witches and ice cream. Yep. And, and there's some, some guys are selling beer, and those are the guys that go to jail for doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some guys are selling weed on the beach. And it's pretty organized. At least it was <laughs> when we were doing it. And we're like, we don't want to, like, the, the ice cream guys, it was like too much work. It's like you had to go. You had to go to the distributor, get your chip witches and your froze fruits. You had to get dry ice. You had to have five coolers. And God forbid your merchandise, you know, melts. So, well, yeah. yeah. You need the, the dry ice. But it was like yeah. a whole routine. There's a lot of work to it. You had, and then you had to get there early and park in the first row of spots. And you had to go. These guys, like, well, we had a friend who did it. And he'd have a shovel. And he'd take the first cart, you know, of ice cream to the beach dig a hole, drop it in, put the blanket over it. Like, wow. it's probably something no, no one knows. Because you had to get, like, five or six of these, you know, big coolers down on the beach before the police on their scooters are there because state state-owned property. That's actually really smart. Yeah. So he put them, four or five of them, on the beach, plus save time because the parking was far away and you just couldn't. So, like, and then he's walking around selling chip witches and froze fruits. and But he's, he's making... Some of those guys were making probably back then eight thousand bucks a weekend, ten thousand bucks a weekend on just cash ice cream. Shit. Cash. Yeah. Cash. 
Which they then buried right next to the chip, which is, yeah. Yeah, yeah you yeah, get yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> so we decided, well, like, that's too much work. <laughs> we're not going to sell beer, like, because you go to jail for that. We're not going to. So we're like, what if we sold jewelry? <laughs> so we, we literally were like, all right, how we get jewelry? So we, we're like, it's me and him. There's no internet back then. We're right. like, we figure out there's a trade show, like maybe through our sisters or whatever. Maybe that's the cool part of my Yeah, sister. yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, Shout um, out to your sister. Yeah, yeah you're right. and, the underworld boss. <laughs> that's right. And we literally go to the trade. We make up these fake NBC News passes, like literally cut out like an NBC logo from like a <laughs> Reader's Digest or whatever, like a magazine, and put our picture on it said NBC News, and we got passes to go in. <laughs> and we're like interviewing, and now we're meeting like hot girls, like the display girls with jewelry. You're like Frank Abagnale Jr. It's, exactly. Yeah. It's a little weird. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. But not sophisticated though at all. <laughs> and, um, but we end up finding like this vendor who has like Mother of Pearl bracelets and like those, um, the cloth bracelets that say peace, love, like all these things. And they're like, well, like how much are those? And they're like 25 bucks a bag. How many are in a bag? A hundred in a bag. So you're paying 25 cents for bracelets. So we're like taking like bags to the beach in our backpack. But there was a whole system. Like you had a, <laughs> like you have them in your hands and you had like bandanas with the mother of pearl anklets and bracelets. And you'd walk around going anklets, bracelets, and you know, girls are at the beach and like 10, 12 girls, they call you over and you'd sell these things for five, six, 10 bucks a piece, have like 110, you know, $120 sale to 10 girls. They're bored. They're looking at your jewelry. You're looking for the cops. You know, you have your fives <laughs> folded a certain way, your tens, like there's all like a science to yeah. it, you know, your, your bigger bills on the back. And like this way you could keep your eyes going and, and it's about uh, speed. Exactly. And, and, and knowing where the cops were. Yeah, sure, right? yeah. On, that, on their ATVs. Did you have to run? Because um, you got to look for like the wet sand then. <laughs> exactly. So, no, but there's, it's a sea of people. Right. right? Yeah. By like 11 a.m. It's like a sea of So you could see the cop coming on the ATV. <laughs> like you could see, and he's trying to weave through like, and they're on binoculars. Like it's a serious like. Yeah, yeah. we've seen Baywatch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know Baywatch. <laughs> okay, it's the Baywatch thing. <laughs> And, and literally, I'm, I'm, you're sitting there doing a sale, and all of a sudden, you see like the cop weaving through people. And you take your jewelry, throw it in your backpack. The thing is, you lay down flat. Rule one. Just <laughs> lay down flat, right? You have your T-shirt on. You're sitting there. In your backpack, you have a towel and a hat. <laughs> you take the towel out. You put the hat on. You take your shirt off. Put it in your bag. You stand up, and you go to the beach. You go down to the water and then you drop your stuff. They never found. They couldn't find you. So unreal. Yeah, it was a good. I got busted once, but it was at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. It was like a sale I shouldn't have tried to do. No one was around. The guy came right up on me, and I was just damn. So yeah, it was for thirty kilos. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Of bracelets. From, yeah, Fernando <laughs> from Brazil. Yeah. yeah, but it was funny because my room, like, <laughs> my room that summer was like, or two summers that we did it, were like bags of bracelets, which was, you know, yep the furthest I go of yeah, selling yeah, yeah. illegal, you know, stuff. And and then stacks of like tens, twenties, singles. And it was just it was a fun summer. That's wild. But that wasn't gonna be the rest of your life. No. <laughs> At one point in my like it, it, it's a great job. Like yeah. walking on the beach, talking to girls, yeah. sitting down, putting bra- anklets on them and running from the cops. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's great. But then yeah, then I got in then I realized like I had to do something more and, and what we talked about earlier, my dad didn't want to pull me yeah. into that business. He was, you know, fully supportive of me doing what I want. My partner, 
on the business right now, John Cohn, who I've yeah. been in business with for 20 plus years, we were best friends in seventh grade. And he was like, he was a music junkie. He knew, he read all like the producer credits on albums and he was a college rep and he was working at a place called SBK Records. Mm -hmm. And he's like, why don't you come up here? They're looking for an assistant, the guy who runs urban music here, this guy Virgil Sims. Shout out Virgil Sims mm. for bringing me in as an intern. Virgil was at Sleeping Bag Records. Yeah. Then he was running the urban department. And um, Virgil, I literally came from the beach and I had like, <laughs> I, I had long hair. I had my bandana on my head. And Mother of Pearl lots on, of the, bracelets, on yeah. the right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I had a really bad demo tape of me rapping. <laughs> It was like, it was, I was a nightmare. Not even Drew Ha? No, no. I wish I had Drew's demo tape. But Wait, what I, was your rap name? I, it doesn't matter. No, it, it definitely matters. It doesn't it, matter. It, it almost matters. If it's too much. I know. If it's Father of Pearl, you win. No, no. Anyway, I play my demo for Virgil. He's looking at me like sideways. And then he's like, I need an intern. I'm like, done. He's like, you can never rap again. Though. I'm like, okay, done. You're looking like, so, right. like Axel, Axel Rose. Right. Yeah, it was, it was bad. And then day one of my job, so I show up. I don't even know how to dress. It was like one of those humid New York days. It's like 120 degrees. And I, I, I think I, I remember I was wearing like a light blue dress shirt with no T-shirt. I didn't know you wear like those, like a wife beater underneath. I yeah, just yeah, had the yeah. T-shirt on. So I had a commute from Long Island. I'm sweating like in my shirt. I get to the office early. I'm sitting there. Virgil walks in. And the way we were set up, I sat next to him. So we sat side by side, which is the most awkward, horrible experience yeah. to sit next to your boss <laughs> every day for 10 hours, 11 hours. And this guy, he was- You guys had an open plan for uh Open for floor the, plan, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was horrible. Yeah. It was, it was, so the first thing Virgil does, he just didn't want me around like that first, you know, like I was in his face, like, what can I do for you? He's like- So he fired you. No, he like looks at me, he's like, gives me five bucks and he's like, go buy me like a cold water. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so leave the building and like the, the first newsstand, I'm telling you, I'm starting to sweat already. <laughs> so I'm like, first newsstand, oh, he, no, buy me a bottle of Evian. Mm. Oh, go well, down. excuse me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah excuse yeah. me. So I go down. Yeah. There's no Evian, but I'm like, all right, he meant a bottle of water, <laughs> right? Translate. So I buy him a regular, whatever it was, and mm -hmm. I bring it back up and he just looks at me. He's like, I said Evian. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but it's hot. Give me an Evian. So I'm like, okay. So I, I literally went like five blocks. I'm like dripping <laughs> wet. And, and it was a great lesson though. Yeah. And I, I don't think I ever misinterpreted what a boss told me to do after that. Hey guys, we just want to take one second to interrupt this podcast to let you know that our book, Rhyme Book, is number one on Amazon.com. Really? Number one. Number one. On Amazon.com. Number one? No higher. If you look on the blank sheet music chart yep. on Amazon.com, Rhyme Book is there. Number one. Number one. We did it. This is what we dreamed of when we first created this book to be at the top of the blank sheet music charts. Has Mark Twain been there? I don't think so. Has Anne Rice been there? I don't know who that is. She's the, uh, she writes like vampire books. No, then she's not there. JK Rowling? I don't think so. None of these people have written blank sheet music books. Our book rhyme book is on sale right now finally go to amazon.com go to barnesandnoble.com go to itstherial.com get your copy today it is the number one blank sheet music book let's make it the number one book in general go get your copy today where were those offices 1296th avenue 51st and 6th yeah 
42nd floor. And EMI Publishing was on the floor above us, 43rd. Was Rolling Stone there at that time or no? Yes. What were you... What you have a lot of old school knowledge yeah. for a young kid. It's <laughs> well, pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> no, but like Rolling Stone's still there. Yeah. So it's not that like... Right. You know, yeah. yeah. Right. If I was like, yeah. oh, SBK Records, like that's where Vanilla Ice was signed. Like, Atlantic, that, right, right. Yeah, Atlantic, that would be more Atlantic impressive. Atlantic was in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Atlantic was in that building too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, you guys know Atlantic. Ooh, yeah. Very, very, very well. Right. Almost yeah. too well. Yeah. 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 We're, yeah. So much so that... So at the old building... Uh, there was a guy who worked security down there and he would just like let us through all the time. He also sold bootleg DVDs and also some bootleg CDs. Right. And then when they moved, uh, he was very disappointed that he wouldn't see us all the time. Yeah, but the interesting thing about the guy who was selling DVDs was that they, or the CDs and everything, were that they were coming from upstairs. Yeah. And so like <laughs> this idiot, <laughs> would, anyway. He yeah. should have just like laid down flat when yeah. the cops came. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like, so right. <laughs> yeah, so you're so you're you're interning there. What are your duties? I seriously, um, water boy. Yeah. Water definitely water boy. Um, but no, I connected. Virgil was one of the. Virgil taught me so much because he was in charge of all the radio stations. He was in charge of getting radio records played at Urban Radio, which is quite entertaining. And the, the guy, everyone's a character, and there's a lot going on back in the '90s sure. of Urban Radio. <laughs> But Virgil had his list of 80 or 90 stations he dealt with. He probably had four locals. And most heads of promotion would sit back and let their locals. Virgil had me call every one of his stations. And I would sit on hold until they picked up and said, please hold for Virgil. So I could be, he would hold, I've never seen anything like this. He would hold for 40 minutes for people. He'd have me hold, but he had four or five phones and we would call and call and we'd be on hold for three different people, you know, and he'd get on the phone and he would get records played at radio. What kind of records were you pushing? Uh, SBK back then was Smokey Robinson was a record. Mm. Technotronic Mm -hmm. was Pump Up the Jam. Yeah. Um, Vanilla Ice, Ice Ice Baby. Mm-hmm. Um, that got a lot of spins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you guys had the Drew, Teenage Mutant so, Ninja Turtles soundtrack. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's I, right. I looked it up. Like that's <laughs> not that's not that one, right. yeah, yeah, it's yeah. cheating. But yeah. that's where Drew Ha interned for me. That was his first summer interning for me when I worked for Virgil. And you said, "Go get me Avion Water." No, <laughs> I should have. Um, we had a group. There was a, a rap group called Fifth Platoon. You guys probably don't know them. And they had a no, song called no. Party Line. And I had Drew working the record, but at some point, whatever it was, there was politics at these labels. Virgil wanted to kill the record, but Drew, I had Drew working college radio. And that was like Drew's first start in the business. I was putting Drew in like little conference rooms with like a phone, like calling stations, and we got busted by Virgil. Like he got pissed. <laughs> like it was, it was, it was, it was, it was pretty comical, but. Drew was like my intern making phone calls, and that's how Drew learned how to call up these guys and talk to them about records, and yeah. So when Drew was your intern, what were you? I was a glorified intern. <laughs> I, was, I was Virgil's assistant. Yeah. 16 grand a year. Wow. Yeah. And I used to buy Drew like lunch once in a while. That's really nice yeah. of you. Yeah. Yeah, I so, had no money. That's crazy. <laughs> so you're pushing these records. Do you yeah. get to know the PDs pretty well? I got to know some of them, but again, I wasn't on the... I, I remember this. I remember... This was crazy. Two two people that really had a, an impact on me. Julie Rifkin, rest in peace, Steve Rifkin's dad. Mm-hmm. Major... Legend. Legend. Legend in the music game. Look him up if you don't know him. But And one of the m- sweetest, most sincere people. 
um, he was an indie working records and like a marketing guy for, for the labels. And he used to come up and um, see Virgil. And Virgil was, was not, Virgil was tough and he was nuts and whatever. And Julie and I became friends. He just was like, he was like your best friend's dad. And, you know, like instantly, just like a, a warm guy and, a, you know, a tough guy too. But he was, and he just took a liking to me. So mm -hmm. I like, I watched what he did and how he moved. And I always helped him out, got him information. Sorry, Virgil. But like, <laughs> I always like gave Julie like the ins and outs of what was going on, what were priorities, what, mm -hmm. you know. And then the second thing that had a lot of impact on me was I remember Dave Mays coming up with a one sheet. It was like probably two pages stapled together. It was called <laughs> The Source. Yeah. And he pitched Virgil. Virgil let me sit in on the meeting. He pitched Virgil on why the, how The Source was going to be the most influential magazine in hip-hop and that he needed to spend money and promote his acts through it and, and buy into this thing. And I just liked, I was like, I was like, wow. You believed. I, I, I just, I saw it in Dave's face and the source went on to do that. Yeah. And, you know, um, but yeah, I just remember being like, wow, I want, I want to do something like that. Like, that was just cool to me that this guy, he was probably wearing sweatpants. He probably looked like a slob, but it was like, he was happy. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. the one in the dress shirt, like, right. sweating my, you know. <laughs> but yeah, he, I just remember sitting there going like, wow, that like, that's impressive. Like this guy's doing it and like he's building his own thing and he's talking about it being the biggest thing. So yeah. that was like really impressive to me. Uh, did you have, did you, did you plant your flag there and, and feel like you were part of something special? Because this was an age when there were a lot of smaller record labels. It wasn't just yeah. like the four majors well, or three. Yeah. And SBK, I mean, Daniel Glass ran the label. Charles Koppelman, Marty Bandier were like the, you know, SBK, yeah. the names in that they had bought uh, CBS Publishing and, you know, with Steven Swid. It was like, it was a great time in the music business. Interscope had just started, but up until Interscope's explosion, SBK was like the fastest startup and, and had like Wilson Phillips. Like I'm talking like, and th these were days when like, I remember the Vanilla Ice Wilson Phillips days. It wasn't like, oh, Ice sold 100,000 records this week, mm -hmm. which is like, that's a big number. To, yeah. You know, even when CDs, and the, you know, were, Ice was selling 150,000 albums a day. I remember like the meetings were like, oh, we're off 25,000. He only sold 120,000 this week, <laughs> today. Yeah. You know, it was like he was selling like 800,000, a million records a week. It's he sold so 15 million records. Like, it was just a different business. <laughs> and... um. But I, st I knew I wanted to do more. I loved the business. I loved the records. I loved being around the artists. And I loved playing that role. I think I always knew from when I rapped that I wasn't going to be, that wasn't, that wasn't going to be me. Yeah. And well, I mean, Virgil told you so. Basically. <laughs> yeah. And that, and that was, wasn't just Virgil. There was a bunch. That oh, yeah? Played, I played the demo for a few people and, you know, realized it wasn't, it wasn't happening. So I retired quickly from rapping. But... What I ended up doing was I was frustrated being just an assistant, and I just took on. We had dance records that we were putting out. There was a, a thing called SBK One that Guy Moot was running. Guy Moot's now president, I think, of EMI Publishing. Mm. Like went on to do really big things. But he used to have these cool dance records and and house records, and I just started taking them to the clubs, and mm. it would help me get in. So like when I you know I became friends with Steve Lewis and all the door guys. Um, and I could walk into the clubs, not pay a cover, and I was just with vinyl I, under your arm and meeting the DJs, and I was doing this as an assistant, so and kind of hiding it from Virgil, you know. <laughs> but it got to the point where 
I was getting good at it, and I was building this network. Of, and like, you couldn't these... hide it from him anymore. <laughs> That's right. What DJs were you going to? Like, who was popping in in, in NYC? <sighs> Man, let me say that again. Which is like, like who? It's almost like I'm like a foreigner. I know, like, yeah. who was popping in NYC? <laughs> yeah. I'm like a like a French Tim Westwood. That's right. They, you, you know, it's funny because like I remember going down to Philly, and I met these two guys. You probably know them, um, King Brit, Josh Wink. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Okay. But they, they went on to like make some really big records in the 90s, like House Right. Understand the club scene with the exception of like what Flex was doing um, and Jessica Rosenblum mm-hmm. at like the Red Zone. It was a lot of house and dance music. And like right. clubs weren't even allowed to play hip hop, you know? And I was pushing records to a lot of like the Frankie Knuckles, Dave Morales, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and Kenny Dope, like great fucking DJs. Just it wasn't my passion or my love that music, but. Hip hop was so underground, yeah. you know. And then, would you go to the Red Zone, by the way? I've I've been to the Red Zone probably a couple of times, mm-hmm. but I I remember my first real hip hop parties were like Daddy's house. Yeah. was when Puff started throwing parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was just like a whole other. You knew something special <laughs> was going on with that. But um, you but you knew that you weren't going to stay at SBK forever. Like that was just not the well, move. Well, at that point, it wasn't even. Like, I didn't think about leaving SPK. I just wanted to do more than just be an assistant. Like, hmm. I needed... And a year into that, Daniel Glass, who's an incredible mentor, and he has, you know, Glass Note Records now, and he taught John and I so much. And, and so many people under Daniel have gone on to, like, Monty Lippman runs Republic yeah, Records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so many people have come through. Greg Thompson, who's part of, you know, the whole management team for U2 and everybody else. Like, mm-hmm. you know, just people have gone on to do incredible things that have come up under him, but we all learn from Daniel. And um, <laughs> the story's actually really funny, I'll, I'll keep it short, but we did a thing called SBK Day at Charles Koppelman's house in Roslyn, mm-hmm. and it was like they broke, they had the whole company there, and we played like different sports, and it was like a, a competition, like an Olympics with teams. <laughs> and um, it came down to us in the marketing department, and Daniel's like super competitive, <laughs> and it was like, I was, a, I was a good athlete, so this was like, it was all like kind of a joke. Like yeah. I was like having fun, but we played this volleyball game, and I'm still an assistant at the time. Play this volleyball game, it's, you start with like 12 people on each side, us first, the marketing department, and every time someone makes a mistake, they have to sit down. So it gets down to being like six of them against me, <laughs> or set, whatever, and I serve, someone gets out, but it's like, non-athletes i'm not i'm not playing against like right yeah you yeah, know yeah. lebron james rob moore type, right? yeah, yeah, yeah rob yeah, moore yeah. i was not playing rob yeah. moore <laughs> so sorry it's like seven against one six against one five against one everyone's starting to get excited now and it's like whoever wins this game wins the whole sbk day yeah yeah daniel's like come on rob you gotta win. like he's like so into it. i'm like okay like you know, yeah like we'll win yeah like, sir three against one it gets down to like he's like two against one he's like you win this you're going to get that job, promote you. You could get the dance job. You'll be like, and that's literally how I got the job. So I won. <laughs> you, I th- yeah, I won. <laughs> what kind of volleyball. bullshit industry is this? I know. <laughs> I'm telling you. You had home court advantage because you were in Long Island. So yeah, 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 possibly. Yeah. 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 And played football. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. No, but it was, it was, I just, Daniel was intense. And to a man of his word, he gave me the promotion, which I think he was going to do. You, you know what yeah. I mean? Like it wasn't the like company was exploding. <laughs> yeah. No one was like promoting records. And, and I really became, and Daniel said something really smart to me. He's like, you could become the club guy and you're young. And he's like, you're going to be able to travel the country and go to clubs at night. 
But if you're smart, you'll wake up every morning and go meet the program director, music director, yep. and the guys at the station. Yeah. And that's what I did. I'd be out till four in the morning. I wake up at eight, bring breakfast to a station and get in. And you know, you just politic. And and they wanted to hear from me too, like because yeah. I was in the scene. They know, you know? yeah, you know what's popping. Yeah. So, Hot ninety seven at that time was a rhythm station. Yeah, Hot ninety seven. Um, they weren't playing like rap yet, right? No, they Freestyle. started in like 93. Yeah. 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 It was Joel Salkowitz was running the station. They started playing hip hop when Steve Smith came to town. Right. And I had met Steve when he was in Arizona and I was, I was promoting records and we had like, we had like eight records and used to bring CDs or records. And I went to see Steve, Monty Lippman, who was the local set it up. I was like the national <laughs> crossover director or whatever. So Monty's like, Steve, please meet with Rob. And Steve's like, no bullshit guy. He's like, Monty, I don't have time. I got to run a station. Who is this guy? Like, you know, Steve was like, and Monty's like, trust me, just meet him, give him 10 minutes. You got to do me a favor. And Monty was great with these guys. Mm -hmm. So I go to the station. I'm sitting there like in the lobby for like 45 minutes, an hour. He finally comes out and it's not like, hey, Rob, good to meet you. Steve's like, I, you know, Monty said I have to meet with you. Like, he's like this neurotic, like crazy. I love him to death. Yeah, but, yeah of course. Yeah. I don't, and this is my first impression of him. He's like, I don't have time for this. I'm like, just come back. And we like go back to his office and he, and I literally reach into my bag and I take out like the eight CDs and put them on his desk. And he flip. He's like, I don't have time to listen to this. And, but, and I'm like, and I literally take seven out of the eight. And I just take him, I throw him in his garbage. And he like looks at me. I'm like, this is the one record you should be playing. I give it to him. I say, see you later. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. Come <laughs> down, let, let, like, I, I don't know if he felt guilty because he's like a, a super nice guy. Or if he was like intrigued that I didn't That's so awesome. care that he was yeah. throwing me out of his office. And like, I ended up sitting with him for like an hour talking about music. The record I slid him was this Ali D flavor in your ear record. Not flavor, brand new flavor. Something. He played it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he ended up playing it, but it was Ali D record. It was like a catchy, jingly, weird record, but it had its run. But Steve added that record, but we became friends. So were you watching the charts like every week and seeing how many spins you would get and like everything? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like working, working records. It wasn't as sophisticated back then. It was mm -hmm. more like you, there wasn't like, they didn't track the spins like that. The stations reported spins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And back then some stations would report 40 spins when they were really not playing the record sure. it was yeah. like paper ads yeah and, but as it got more sophisticated like there was a, a way to be sophisticated about it but when steve moved to new york i i had already become tight with him and i was like look wait when you get here like i'll help you out like i think he had just gotten through something like maybe divorce or whatever and he was running kiss in the hot 97 and i helped him like move in and we i take him for wow. dinner and then like I take him around the city just to like spots for him to see. You know, we go to Long Island, we go to the Bronx. We, go, I would just drive through and let him see, stand around, and get the vibe of the city. The, yeah. the city had a vibe. Like yeah. I think when you're talking about like, do I miss yeah. old New York? Old yeah. New York was different. It was like you you could find kids like standing on a corner hanging out like in a cipher, like or like clubs that really were about the music. And yeah, it was just a different vibe. So we we did some of that, and then um. He had changed the station to a hip hop station, and and this thing I said to him, I had just started at Arista, and I'm like, look, there's this guy Puffy, he's got this label Bad Boy, he's the shit. Like you need to meet him, and like Puff, you know, all he had done at that time was the stuff he did at Uptown, yeah, um, and he had just started Bad Boy, 
And like looking back, like you don't know at the time how important something is, but you know, I said, Steve, let's go see him. Like, trust me, like, let's just go meet him. So, um, Puff's office was on 19th street. This was the original bad boy office. And I didn't know Puff that well. I had met him a couple of times at the daddy's house and I was in a really incredible meeting with him before he started bad boy through Clive, which was really interesting, which I'll, maybe we'll get to that. Yeah, Yeah. But anyway, so I go get Steve in a car at the station on 37th street, hot 97. And Steve doesn't really know what to expect, but he knows he has to embrace the city and to his credit, he knew he had to like be a part of the community and like he needed to meet these guys and he needed to like not be a big radio station. He, he needed to make it home to these artists and he did that. So we get in the car, we go see Puff. Puff's 22 and, and like when you walk into Bad Boy at the time, you get off the elevator, like reception straight in front of you and on the right on this big brick wall, like gray wall, it wasn't even brick, it was just, it said, in real in big block lettering, don't be afraid to close your eyes and dream, then open them and see Sean Puffy Combs. Oh my god. <laughs> and like, you know, with the footprints of the bat, you know, and it said bad boy. And it was just like it was special. I love that. Spe- I would have loved to see Puffy on Instagram. Oh my god. In in nineteen ninety four, yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god. But but yeah. But but you walk in and it's like this frenzy of young energy. Like Mary J, like, look up in the sky, it's, it's playing, and there's, like, kids with demos waiting to get, get in to see someone. I, you know, I, I, every, and people are running around, and there's boxes of, of posters and stickers and tape guns and not probably other guns, but yeah, yeah, like yeah. tape guns you can yeah, see. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it, was like, it was like a movement. Like, you knew something special was going on there, and it was like, it was chaotic. And it was like the street teams were gearing up, like, for, for bat, like they were going in the streets with, like, bad boy stickers and posters and all that stuff. And they take us, they take Steve and I into um, the conference room. And like, we're having a meeting. We walk into this conference room and there's two Italian waiters in tuxedos with bow ties, a red and white tablecloth over the table, (laughs) and like the greatest looking chicken parm, the greatest looking like pasta, (laughs) shrimp. It was like an Italian restaurant in the conference room. And I'm like, Puff's unreal. Like this guy is <laughs> unbelievable. And we're sitting in there, we're waiting for him to come in. And I'm so like amazed by the food. <laughs> and Steve's sitting there and he's like, Steve's an intense guy. And I'm like, Steve, do we eat? Do we ask these guys for food? <laughs> and Steve's like, no, just wait, just wait, just wait. So we wait and Puff comes in and Puff's like, he, he's so confident, but he's 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 like still 22, you know? It's like, and and I'm 24 at the time, or 20 and Steve's probably a little older, but Puff comes in and there's like this nervous, he's not nervous, but there's like this intensity and energy to him. He sits down and he's just like so professional about how he like welcomes Steve to the building. And then the waiters start bring, like on cue, like start bringing food in front of us. And I'm like, I'm half like really focused on the food, but I <laughs> half like really want to hear what, how Puff's playing this. And yeah. he just starts explaining his his like, vision for bad boy and you know what he's done already with like mary and jodeci and you know how he has the blueprint and he could share it with anybody but how important he he's he he's his intuition was amazing because he started telling steve how important it is of what steve is doing like what you're doing is so important for the city and for the world and like he saw it like 
he paid, like you knew he Puff closed saw. his eyes and dreams. He, he, yeah. But, yeah, but he yeah. saw it wasn't like I've had dreams that like <laughs> not, not you know what I mean. Yeah. But his dream it was like a vision. He knew what he had and that he just needed this platform. And while he's doing that, I like start eating the chicken part. And like next thing, <laughs> I look up and like they're not touching their food. So I kind of like <laughs> maybe it's not I shouldn't eat the food. Right. Like, even though I really wanted to, but like, and they just had like this good conversation and Puff said, I have this artist, Notorious uh, Biggie Smalls. I don't even think it was Notorious Big yet. Mm -hmm. Right. He didn't have to change the name. Yeah. 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 Um, And Craig Mack. And then he's like, I'm going to come with two female groups, a group and a female artist, which ended up being Faith and, you know, uh, Total. Yeah. And then he came with one, but he talked about this. Like he had had the the blueprint. blueprint. He really did. And, um, that's so crazy. Yeah, and that began that be- began the friendship between those guys. So, when did you realize that you were really good at your job? I, I don't know if I realized I was. I knew I was good because first off, I think I was rare because I was someone who understood how to translate hip hop to the masses, and I was also. I'm not going to take credit for shit I shouldn't take credit for. I was in the perfect place. Clive Davis, who was legitimately probably one of the greatest record men in the business at that time. Yeah. Like he went on to do even greater things, but you couldn't mess like Clive was the shit. Yeah. Clive was smart enough to realize like this is coming and I'm going to into business with LA Reed. I'm going into business I think LA turned Clive onto Puffy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sign Puffy and Puffy the interesting part, I was at a meeting three, four, not even, probably two, when Puff got fired from Uptown, mm-hmm. in the table, I'm sorry, <laughs> but when Puff got fired from Uptown, he was shopping his bad boy deal, and I was at EMI at the time, right? I was with Daniel, and, and Fred Davis, who was Clive's son, mm-hmm. was head of A&R, and we go to this meeting with Puff, so I sat in a meeting that was incredible to watch Puff talk about his label. And what he wanted to do. And, and they were talking about making him head of, you know, uh, urban music at EMI and giving him this imprint, Bad Boy. And it didn't work out. But like four weeks later, when I'm at Arista and Puff walks in, my boss, you know, introduces me. This is Rob Stone. And he's like, amazing. So Puff walks in with a couple of guys, his guys. And I'm in Rick Biseglia's office, who's head of promotion. And I literally just started. <laughs> Puff walks in. And he looks at me, and he remembered me from the meeting, and we had met a couple of times before. Um, and he just, he's like, Rick goes, this is Rob Stone. He's going to be doing, you know, crossover radio. And Puff just looks at me. So this was before the Steve Smith meeting. Mm-hmm. And Puff just walks up to me, he looks at me, he goes, they paying you well? <laughs> and they were. So I'm like, yeah, like, you know, yeah, they're paying me well. He's like, all right. And, and seriously, in front of my boss, and this, he was a hero to me, he goes, if they don't treat you right, you call me and let me know. Because if you're working my records, they better treat you right. Wow. And I was just like, wow. Yeah, like I wanted to hug the guy. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah, like, yeah. But I was like, okay, cool. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but like he, I think his his instincts and into, there's a reason why he's done what he's done, and his instincts are incredible. You know, like just how he played that room for sure. And it made me like I, I think maybe there I realized like. I'm going to go all out for bad boy and this guy and then never like, I think the the thing I always realized about 
my relationship with Puff over the years, and especially in those early days, I never... There were times I wasn't invited to a bad boy party. Mm-hmm. I would never call. I could have called him and said, hey, can I get on the list? And he probably would have said, of course. But I never asked for anything unless it benefited him and bad boy. Right. You know, so like I knew my position yeah. on the field. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I knew what my role was and I never overstepped those boundaries. That's awesome. So maybe that was where I realized I could, I could be good at it. But again, I was, I was dealt a green hand, I, you know. Biggie, yeah. Craig Mack. I mean, we changed radio with them, and it was hard. It wasn't easy to get urban artists played at you know, commercial white-owned radio stations back then when there were very few stations doing it. KML in San Francisco, amazing. They had this no-color lines tagline. They were playing hip-hop. And it was just starting. You yeah. know, it was just in a lot of stations would only play like pop urban music. So. so what's a record that you took a chance on? Funny you should ask. Um, <laughs> God, this is, this is a great story. Sit back and relax. I'll, I'll, I'll try to cut to the chase. But um, I was so, so, I remember I got the call, and this was probably, this was after the Steve Smith Puffy meeting. And I get the call from Puffy's office. Puffy wants to play you some music. Can you be at his office at 4 o'clock today? I'm like, yeah. Like, yeah, I'll get down there. We want 57th Street. I get down to 19th Street. I get there at four. I think around five fifteen, I'm asked to come back to his office. <laughs> but again, like and and whatever. So I go into the office, but you know, Puff's like, I'm gonna play you the big album, and he like literally told his assistant, he's like, shut my door, don't interrupt me. So it's like all these things, like whether instinctual or thought through, were like super impactful. Like I'm sitting here going, this guy's running a company. He's talking to Clive. He's talking to. The- and he's shutting the door. Like, For it made you. me realize yeah, how yeah. important the moment was. Yeah. You know? And he literally played me the unmastered cassette, which I still have, that he gave me. Um, people weren't afraid of leaks back then, for hmm. whatever reason. But he, he played me the big album, which was unmastered, ready unfinished, to ready yeah. to die. And we sat cut by cut. And it was probably, like, the greatest hour and a half of, like, my music career, especially to that point. But um, I just remember leaving... And he gave, he's like, you want the cassette? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> he gave me the cassette. And um, I called Mike Kaiser, who was at Def Jam mm-hmm. at the time. And he, he was running around. He had like Method Man and Red Man. And I just called Kaiser. I'm like, yo, I just heard one of the top five greatest albums of all time. And he's like, albums or hip hop albums? I'm like, no, like, this is one of the greatest albums of all time. And Kaiser remembers it because he always gives me a hard time about it. But like, <laughs> nah, it, it was just it was that moment. Yeah, like, you know, sometimes you're in those moments, and then when you look back at them, you realize how special they were yeah. too. But it was that, and then so I was really I, I was like the one person on the pop promotion team, and that's why they brought me into Arrow. So I really understood hip hop, and I reported into Rick, and Rick was an incredible pop radio and strategist like he knew how to break records and he was great and arista was a machine arista clive was making great records clive had the best producers the best writers <laughs> the best artists he had incredible instincts himself so it was just like this perfect storm of being in the right place at the right time and um you know the biggie album came out and, and juicy you know then you know b-side might have been mm. unbelievable at the time or whatever um then big papa was the second single mm-hmm. Um, and I remember sitting in a marketing meeting and they announced that the third single is going to be um, Machine Gun Funk. 
And this is like deep into I've been on the road with Big and like I know the album. Mm-hmm. I know Big now. Mm-hmm. This guy's like personality is huge. He's smooth. Like, yes, he's big and he's he- But there was like a smoothness and a charm to him. And Machine Gun Funk was a great record. Like, you go listen if you don't know it to, you know, I know you guys know yeah, it, but yeah, like yeah. Ready to Die, Machine Gun Funk's a great, great record. Right. It just didn't sit well with me that I could get it played at all these stations. Like, we got Big Pot. Like, we were breaking through. It just didn't feel like the right next record. So I went home and, like, re-listened to the album for, like, probably the five, like, at that, like, I just abused that album, you know? <laughs> so I listened to it, and I came in the next day, and first thing in the morning, I go to Rick, who had great instincts, too, and I just said, Rick, I, th- I think Puffy, I think this is the wrong next single. Like, we, the, he's like, whoa, and Rick is, like, impatient. He's like, well, what, what, what do you mean? He's like, why didn't you say anything? Like, and I'm like, I'm, t- I'm like, in my head, I'm like, I'm fucking 24. It's, I'm not saying, <laughs> yeah, right. like, in a meeting. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, I, I, think, I think it could be a different record. I just think it's not the right record, whatever. And I didn't have to explain it to Rick. So like two hours later, which is like probably 11 in the morning, um, Stacy calls me, Rick's assistant. She's like, quick, get in Rick's office. And I go into Rick's office, and Rick had this two-way speakerphone. One-way speakerphone. Everyone has a two-way speakerphone. <laughs> yeah. But he has a one-way where he could put the person on speaker mm-hmm. and still talk on the phone so it doesn't sound like you're on speaker. Pretty tricky. But like other people could be listening to you. So... Rick's talking to, and, and Rick used to always say stuff like, I get it, I hear you, man, I get it. <laughs> and he's doing a lot of that, but he doesn't have the speaker on yet. And he's like, I get it, man, I understand. He's like, well, he's like, Rob Stone has an idea and he wants to tell you. <laughs> he gives me the phone. I don't know who's on the phone. And all of a sudden, he's giving me, I'm like, who is he? He's like, it's Puffy, tell him your idea. I swear to God, I didn't think through the idea. Like, <laughs> Yeah, you had no idea. <laughs> well, I had an idea, but I didn't like... Right, but I'm just saying it's like a, it's not a fully formed yeah. you know, thought. It's like... Right. Yeah. <laughs> but an idea not expressed the right way yeah. is not a good idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, you have to be able to articulate and, and say your idea. And I didn't, ha- I didn't think I had it at the time. So I, like, I panicked a little. I have the phone. And I'm like, hello? And at this point, <laughs> Rick hits the one-way speaker button. <laughs> So I hear, like, and he was probably in the studio till four or five in the morning. So I hear, "What's up?" And it's Puff, and I'm like, <laughs> I said probably the word. I go, "I think you're making a mistake <laughs> with Machine Gun Funk as the next single." Not, like, not a good opening. Yeah, yeah. it's Puffy, and yeah. he's and he's winning every yeah, day. Right. I mean, you got right to the point. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, you are you are your your, your father's you. son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. I just, it's silent, and then I just hear, and there was some debating going on about the single, but he chose that single, and and I just hear him raise his intonation, and his energy came up, and he was like, all you motherfuckers think you know what the fuck I should be doing, what you need to be doing is getting my fucking shit played at radio, and don't fucking think about what I need to do. I know what the fuck I need to do. Like, like the lion came out of him. Yeah, like the yeah. intensity, the this is my fucking vision. Don't fuck with it. And I swear to God, I was ready to just be like, oh my God, you're 100% right. <laughs> you were ready to die. I was ready. I was done. And Rick looks at me and he goes, mouths to me, because he hears him on the ones, fucking tell him. Rick's, Rick's like, fucking tell him. I'm sitting there and Puff's yelling at me. My boss is like... 
and I'm young and I just go, he's yelling. And at some point I just go, Puff, you want to yell at me or you want to hear my idea? Yo. And like. Gutsy. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, and he had some respect for me. I know that. Like yeah. I know like, cause he saw how hot, like we had built, this is a year into the project. So we've now worked together a year. And he's like, what's up? <laughs> I get the what's up. Again. And he, and I just, I went for it. I just said, look, you came with Juicy, which was rags to riches. And like everyone gets the story. The guy was selling drugs. Now he's like got a little money and he's got his deal. You know, it went from negative to positive. It's all good. Baby, and then, baby. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then Big Papa. Now he's the guy in the club. You know, girls, are, I love it when you call me Big Papa. You know, he's, he's got some money. He's dressing a little different. I said, now you're going to Machine Gun Funk. I'm like, it's an incredible record. I'm like, but it's not telling, in my mind, the story of Big. And I'm like, I've gotten to know him. And he was like silent. And I'm like thinking either he hung up <laughs> or I'm about to get screamed on again. But like he didn't say anything. So I'm like, I'm just going to keep going. So then I'm like, you know, I think the next single should be One More Chance. And his response, and like I'm, I'm nauseous during this. Like, but now I'm like kind of into my vision of it. I'm like, should be one more chance. And he's like, I'll never forget. He's like, one more chance. He's like, there's nothing but curses on. That's not a radio <laughs> record. And like his intonation went up, but he was a little intrigued. It wasn't attacking. Right. It was just like question. It was like, pro, you know, provoking or like prodding, like trying to like. This, I can't get that. You can't get that record played at radio. I'm like. Puff, you just did the Flavor in Your Ear remix and changed that whole record. I'm like, take Big into the studio, remake the record. I'm like, put Faith, Total, Aaliyah, rest in peace, Madonna, Janet Jack, put all the beautiful women saying, oh, Biggie, give me one more chance. You're saying this on the phone. I'm saying this on the phone. And again, there's like the silence. And then I just hear him go, oh, shit. He's like, I got that good love girl you didn't know. And he said that line because on the original album, that's, yeah. oh, Biggie, give me one more. I'm not yeah. sing it. But, yeah, and then yeah. I got that good love girl you didn't know. So he said that and he's like, oh, shit. And he's like, I'm going to call you back. And he hangs up. And I am Rick the phone and Rick's like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> he's like, what just happened? Like he, had, he, he Way over his head. I love you, Rick, but if you, you, Rick won't even listen to this. But... but and I just like sat in Rick's couch and I'm like, oh my God. He's like, what? I'm like, he got it. I'm like, he got what I was saying. And I, I said, I guarantee he's going to make a remix and probably deliver a remix of One More Chance record. And like literally 10 days later, and this is his brilliance, right? Because right, right. like I gave an idea. Yeah. The remix could have been whatever. Sure. Yeah. But he put the DeBarge sample on yeah. it and he gave the hip hop remix for the street. And came in with that record like 10 days later. It obviously changed the course of radio. It changed the course of everything. Um, and I'm proud that I, I it, it taught me a big lesson in speaking up. Sure. You know, like, what, like things could have gone really bad. Yeah. Right? Like he could have flipped and been like, whatever. But he got it. I spoke up and the song actually tied for the highest debut on the Hot 100, it tied Scream by Michael Jackson the week earlier. And Janet Jackson. Right, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I know, right. Who didn't make the One More Chance yeah, video. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. We might have debuted higher if, if Puff got her in it. But um, but yeah, it debuted at number five. Um, and it was the highest debuting hip-hop record till Missing You that Puff did a few years That's later. 
Undo. Um, debut, I think, in number one. So yeah, one more chance. You know, ends up tying Scream on the Hot 100 and whatever. And like a few weeks later, I'm I'm walking in the city um, with a friend on the West Side in the 50s, and it's when the Hit Factory was hot, and Puff was recording a lot there. And I'm walking up the street from some event. It was on the West Side. And it's like 9:30, 10 o'clock at night, and Puff's in front of Hit Factory with like. 20 people posted up (laughs) holding court yeah puff daddy this is puff it's not puffy it's not sean combs this was puff daddy Mm -hmm. biggie's the biggest record in the one more chance the biggest record he's he's just in his glory and i get the yo rob stone and i'm like what's up puff and i walk over to him and he just looks at me and he goes i told you one more chance was (laughs) like, like literally like straight face like i told you one more chance was the next record and oh i'm like and i literally was like offended i'm like you told me i told <laughs> you and he started laughing and gave me a pound and that was it and it was like that was that's a cool, awesome that was a cool little moment that's very cool yeah so I mean, um, but, but that's the brilliance of puff no, right because like sure, but he didn't just didn't shut s- me down of course he heard he listened and obviously like took the ball and round with but it but good and, for you for saying something and having well, that like out of body experience to oh like oh my god yeah it was it was on the couch afterwards yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and and god bless rick that he knew he trusted me enough yeah to put me in a really scary position <laughs> with, with puff like obviously he's his intensity is what made him and his vision like yeah. he just wouldn't get off of his own vision so it was it was an amazing that's amazing experience and yeah did you have any other experiences with people who were like so focused the way that Puff is? Steve Rifkin, mm. um, incredible. Um, yeah, um, Steve Smith. Like, y- you know what? It's a really interesting thing to ask because I think anyone who's changed something has been really focused. Mark Pitts, mm-hmm. who and Wayne Barrow, the two of them yep. were managing, you know, big. Um, but like, look at their longevity in the game. Lior, mm-hmm. Lior, super intense and focused on his game. Um, so yeah, uh, you, you know that big, big had his vision. Mm-hmm. Um, you know of, of things. So yeah, it, it's there's there's definitely like an intensity and and even like, yo know, the the like Rick Biseglia, Lionel Ridnow, like the people at our Clive. Clive <laughs> was late. late Clive was relentless at taking like painstaking hours. Clive, you would be in the middle of work. You could be in the, a, me- a meeting with someone, and you get the call. Clive needs you in his <laughs> office, and like it didn't matter. Like there, you know how many? It was the first year I bought Nick tickets. I can't tell you how many games I got to in the third quarter because Clive <laughs> called like a Tuesday random meeting, and you had to be in it. You mm-hmm. couldn't be like, oh, I'm going to the Knicks game, right? And you'd sit there and he would play a Don Was demo and say, go around the room, or a <laughs> Diane Warren demo and say, mm-hmm. who should sing this? What artist do you hear singing this? And you'd have to give your opinions. And like, it, it taught me a lot about understanding how records get made and like what would work. And then. What was the answer, Whitney, every single time? <laughs> that was a very good answer, but there was Tony Braxton at right, the label, yeah. it was TLC, yeah. they were, you know, Faith. They were. There were like a ton of female artists, but um, yeah, you, you and, but the process was amazing because you would see Clive's mind asking me, who was in charge of crossover, mm-hmm. right? Those 30 or 40 really important stations that could get you 
And then he'd ask Lionel, you know, and Gene Riggins, who ran urban music, and he'd get their input. Jeff House, who was running the street. And you'd see Clive kind of form. Who knows? Clive would, would put all these factors into his mind yeah. and then make unbelievable But what decisions. an interesting, like, leadership tactic not mm. to just, like, trust just himself, but to, like, take right. a sampling of those people who do their jobs. Right. Wow, look at right. Eric getting real political. Know, wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, well, right. But no, who, but for real. Right. I, yeah. And I've also been witness to Clive shutting people down mm-hmm. on their mm-hmm. opinion. Mm-hmm. Like, if he believed in something. So it wasn't like he needed our opinions. He... And who knows if he dismissed them or knew what we were going to say, you know what I right, mean? Or right. knew the lot. I mean, he knew his shit. Yeah. Like it was, but it was an interesting process to see him go through this and listen to seven songs and play it again and different mixes and, you know, studio musicians singing these songs. Like it, it was amazing. It was like the Harvard business of the music business. Yeah. And, and I had it with, you know, Puff firsthand and Clive firsthand. So... For me, that, those experiences and being around those two guys, I mean, talk about like an education. Yeah. How long did you stay at Arista? Two years. And then where'd you go? Then I, I had done great. And again, right place, right time, incredible records. And like there were, there were times I'd have on my chart. My chart was like the rhythm crossover chart. I would have 14 Arista records between Bad Boy, LaFace, and Arista out of the top 20, you know, six in the top 10 of airplay. Like, so <laughs> I was doing my job, but honestly, like a lot of times the records were just great yeah. records. And there was like a momentum to Bad Boy and like LA and Baby, you know, those guys knew how to make records. Mm-hmm. And like, we were like a cut above musically. Yeah. And then I was able to do a good job. And Lionel did a great job. So it was like an incredible team effort. And then you had Clive kind of navigating, knowing what a pop, you know, smash sounds like. So it was just like an incredible environment to be around. Um, but then, yeah, I, I, it was time for me to go. Um, they had switched. Rick was out. I almost went with Rick. Rick went to run Crave Records with Tommy, mm-hmm. for Tommy and Mariah, which was their label, which didn't go well. Right. <laughs> um, and I didn't go there. And then I, sp- I, I was talking at the time to Andre, who had just taken over um, Motown. Motown, right. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to work with Andre. I re- re- like, I love Andre and his energy. And, I mean, the guy is incredible and he is passionate and fun. And um, I just remember in one of the meetings... I was down. I was down with going there. Like I was like intern. I was gonna be head of promotion. I was young. I would have been like the youngest head of promotion. And then he's like, "Great, and you know, and you'll be able to fire the whole staff and hire your own team that you need." And I'm like, "You fire what the local?" And there was like 17 locals at, at Motown and probably like 20 year vets. And like, yeah. I'm like Andre. I'm not. I'm not. Fi- I'm not sitting down with like. He's like, "No, no, yeah, you are." And I'm like, "No, I can't." <laughs> I can't like I couldn't wrap my head around firing guys. I didn't feel like I had the experience or the I, I didn't have it in me to do that. It wasn't my time yet to start firing people that have put their life into this company or the, their career. Yeah. And I couldn't do it. And that was like a big factor in why I didn't go there. His his money was right. He um he said the money I was asking for was too much. So he's like, meet me at the Reebok club. And I, at the time I had my ponytail and looked like a beach bomb. He's like, we're going to play basketball for, for the job, for the money you want. And 
I'm like, okay. Why does this keep happening to you? I know, yeah. Weird. Volleyball <laughs> and then basketball. And, yeah. and we played and I won. <laughs> and he was pissed. And then he tried to get me on the treadmill because he was in good shape. He was running then. And he was like, all right, if you throw up, I'm like, I'm not going to throw up. I'm like, you know, but, but yeah. When he moved I'm, the goalpost back on how much you could get paid? Nah, he was, he, he stepped up. Andre was like a man of his word. And it was, it was a big company. And yeah. he was about to do, you know, really trying to do big things. And I was really good or at least what i had done was really good so it put me in a great position to to negotiate and talk and then other you know companies wanted me you know rick wanted to take me clive wanted to keep me at arista um and then i went down to the gavin convention Mm -hmm. and john rifkin introduced me to steve rifkin and steve said one line to me um we were standing outside the hotel and we just started talking and he just said, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. My head's spinning. Like there's a lot of options. And he's like, you know, you ever think of doing your own thing? I'm like, I always think about doing my own thing. I just, you know, want to do it at the right time. He's like, well, would you ever do something with me? And he, Steve was very direct and I kind of, you know, mm-hmm. not like, not Steve didn't paint the picture. He was just like, "Bam, yeah." Mm. Well, why would you do something with me? And I was like, I, "Yeah, probably." He goes, "You know, sometimes owning a smaller piece of something big is better than a bigger piece where the whole thing is something that might not be as big." Wow. And it like stayed with me. And then I just liked the way Steve moved, you know, like and, and how he was and his, um, just his whole thinking was like it it, it fit with me and. Um, and yeah, I decided to go into business with them and start Cornerstone, which was the marketing company, um, and help him be a part of SRC and part of Loud Records. So yeah. it was like, that was another incredible learning experience. Hey guys, just want to take one second to interrupt the podcast to tell you that on October 3rd, one month from today, we will be at Highline Ballroom with our friends Styles P and Sheik Luch of The Locks here in New York City doing a live podcast, Two Jews and Two Black Dudes Review the Movies. Say you don't know what Two Jews and Two Black Dudes Review the Movies is actually about. Mm-hmm. Say that you are like, this name is very confusing. Right. There are two Jews and two black dudes and they're reviewing movies and you can't put all those pieces together. Mm-hmm. What does it all mean? This is what it's like. Can you do Jada's laugh? <laughs> That's really good. Yeah, That's really good. good. Yeah. Can you do it? God, no. Do it. No. Wait, let me do it. Oh, Jeff. I, just did it. I did it like a sucker. You do it, Styles. Nah, I told Jeff I eat it, dude. How the fuck do you want to make me do it when I do it? <laughs> fuck is wrong with you? I'm passing it to them. You're going to pass it back to me. You want to do the Jada laugh. That was pretty good. That was really good. That was really good. Yeah, no, I can't. Jeff, you got to fucking go. No, because I Everybody did it, Jeff. I already did it. Mine sounds like the Birdman call. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> nah, that ain't you trying to do it though. That ain't you really trying to do it. Now it's like, <laughs> not bad. That's cool. Not bad. Yeah, By the way, Joe, Joe yeah. Budden has a laugh where he just goes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? Cracks me up every time that I hear it. Wait, what's the marrow one? Oh, Deez's and marrow. Yeah. I wish we could punch that it. That show in. kills me, man. Yeah, it's great. Shout out to them, all three of them. Deez's and Jesus marrow and, <laughs> and buttons. Oh. <laughs> October 3rd, Highline Ballroom here in New York City. Get your tickets right now before they sell out. It's itsthereal.com, I-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-A-L.com. Two Jews and two black dudes review the movies live. And now back to the podcast. Did you have any type of like grand vision for what Cornerstone would be? Um, I knew we were going to do music marketing, mm-hmm. but that was, that was really it. Great side note story. 
like the first week I started at Loud and started Cornerstone. Maybe it wasn't the first week, but it was early on. Wu-Tang was coming up to sign their deal. And Rizzo walks by my office, and he looked in, and, he, and I had a chessboard in my office. So it must have caught his eye. Yeah. So like while they're going to sign, he comes back, and he's like, yo, you play? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, it's Rizzo yeah. in my doorway asking me if I play chess. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I play. He's like, you want a game? And I'm like, okay. So we take the board out, and I'm like, don't you have to sign your deal? He's like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll sign. And we, we start playing. And Rizzo, when he sat down, he's like, he looks at the board. He's like, kind of mumbled to himself, man, I got to remember how these, these knights move or something. So I'm like, oh, I, I got this. <laughs> he doesn't know how the knight, like, I got yeah, this. Yeah. So he starts playing, and I made a move. And I made like four or five moves in. Like, I, I was a decent chess player at the time. I, I made a questionable move that I would only do against somebody who wouldn't know how their knights really like yeah, you know? yeah. and he was totally playing me yeah. and he, he, demo you? he demolished me it was like I knew it the second I made the move and he did his move yeah. and he knew it it was kind of like this look of like and I'm just sitting there I'm like he just fuck yeah he's like and, you're gonna promote my records nah, <laughs> yeah. no but it, and, and he beat me and, and it was yeah what did you learn at, at Loud Records? Because, I mean, Steve is, is the father of the street team. Yeah. And what did you learn about marketing? The streets don't lie, which Steve, I, I believe, can that term. Mm -hmm. But he, he, I mean, Steve, Steve, the greats have vision. And I remember Steve having, like, serious conviction about what he believed in, even if it didn't make sense. And like most great things, no, 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 most great things don't make sense. Like oh, it, it recent times now that I've had the fader and cornerstone, I've become close with Pharrell. Mm -hmm. Pharrell has a saying where he goes, Pharrell has crazy ideas, mm -hmm. but Pharrell pulls them off too, right? Or it might even start crazy, but he will say to you when he knows you're looking at him like, Pharrell, that's a crazy idea. Like you want to you want to pipe in water from Toronto, like whatever his mm -hmm. crazy idea. And he's like... Just remember, like he's, he's said this to me before, and I always think about it when I'm about to say that will never work. He's like the first guy who spoke about going to the moon everyone thought was crazy. Yeah. And then at some point we went to the moon. So it's not crazy. Right. Like it's just not. So Steve had like this. Look, Steve grew up around Julie Rifkin mm -hmm. and, and his uncle. Um, and then I know he went on the road, I believe, with Teddy, with Teddy Riley and had like incredible hands-on experience of the music business. Um, so he just had a gut instinct that was incredible. And he had a, a great partner in Rich Isaacson who's now, you know, mm -hmm. working with Paul Rosenberg at Def Jam. Yep. So like you see these people, you know, really have done great things. Um, but Steve, Steve had balls. Like Steve had, you know, the ability to ask for things that, I kind of be like, I can't believe he's asking for that, and then walk out of the room with it. You know what I mean? Like he just he would he believed in it and he fought for his artists. So like that's something in a much different way now that I you know when I went on my own and left to just run Cornerstone just because SRC loud Cornerstone was just too much. I was mm -hmm. spread thin. Let me go run Cornerstone and John who was at Columbia came over and he was doing all the indie rock stuff. I was doing all the hip hop stuff. And we were you know partnered. Um, made me realize like anything we do with artists we got to fight for those artists mm -hmm. and like in the sense of working with corporate america 
we have to really fight for these artists. Because how many corporate events do you go to and the fucking stage is whack and the mics don't work and, the, you know, and it's not positioned right. So those are all things as an agency working with big brands that we get right yeah. because we, we're thinking and it's, it's some of that. And John, John has an incredible gut on that stuff and we've instilled it in our staff and our team that we think about those things where I think some companies, if you haven't had the experience of seeing when things go horribly wrong and what to do to make them right, um, you know, that's invaluable. And, and, and Steve always fought for his artists. That's why, you know, I, I just saw a clip on Instagram the other night, Wu-Tang, Wu I think it's 25 years now, mm -hmm. brought him out on stage and said he's the greatest music executive ever. Like, Steve wanted to sign every single Wu-Tang guy yeah. to Loud yeah. and wasn't given the money. And, and fought for it and threw a chair through the window <laughs> at PMG. Like, true story. Yeah. Like, he, like, he wanted to sign, he wanted to give Rizzo whatever Rizzo needed because he understood how special that moment was. Yeah. And, and corporate music business, whoever he had to get that unlocked from, wouldn't unlock it for him. And so everybody went to Def Jam. Right. I, when you were starting I up. You were going to say, I have to leave. Yeah, <laughs> I got to go. This has been fun. Yeah. Um, but your story's over. Um, <laughs> when Cornerstone is starting up, your mission is to bring brands and the music together in a way that has not really been done before. Um, and so, like, how do you go about doing that? And also, like, I saw there's a the, uh, you were on Frontline very early on, like mm. uh, for you guys, not yeah. for Frontline. Frontline has been around forever, yeah. but you guys were on there and you were talking about how Cornerstone they they made a big deal about how you guys would go into like chat rooms and like that come was up the with bullshit like, part of the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we didn't like that part of the story, which wasn't true. Which they sensationalized that or. Mm. Um, that you, that you guys would just like, you know, drum up. Act as another yeah. fan of something. And yeah. Like, yeah, well, it was, it was, it was garbage type reporting. The rest of the piece was, I thought, pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. At least our parts. I think the other agencies were like the cool hunting, like mm. studying, like observe, like shit. We were in the clubs. We were hanging with the artists. Like we were part of this culture and, uh, and appreciated it. We weren't looking, you know, just to to capitalize and monetize it like yes that was part of it but i was also there was a part of me that was like this this is this makes sense like this this is a natural progression and the music industry was starting to go through a really hard time so artists weren't they were getting suffocated a little and if you're beholden to the big labels then they're kind of forcing these younger artists to make records that maybe they shouldn't make so i'm looking at it like and, and this is the crazy thing. I'm on a plane. At the time, when I started Cornerstone, we strictly did radio promotion. I did it on the hip-hop side with mix shows. I had this, this incredible kid, Lee Majors, Lee Harrison, who was helping me and working with me. And we'd call DJs and get records played. I was calling the program directors, and we would help labels and managers get their artists played at radio. John would do that on the indie side. Um, and then we started this thing called the Cornerstone Mixtape, which is kind of legendary. Mm -hmm. And you know, Kinda. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we've, we've, we've made over 200 of them. And it was just, for us, we're like, how, we're working records. And we, and we would say no. There were indies that were working records for less money and working like 30 records. Hmm. So their, their win ratio was low because there's only 40 slots really on a radio station. So I'm like... Let me be selective and charge a lot, you know, four or five times what these guys are charging. And I'll start telling 
presidents of labels, no, like I'm not working that record. I don't think I could help you. Yeah. Good luck, you know? And it made me more desirable. And I got to select. So like everything was in my benefit because I got to pick the records I wanted to work. Plus Puff put me on everything. LA <laughs> put me on everything. So I was winning. Interscope yeah. had me on records. Like I had a momentum starting the business um, that most people didn't. But then Lee and I were talking like, let's come up with a CD monthly that we can have a DJ featured. So we'll elevate the DJ if it's, you know. Big Vaughn and KML in San Francisco. Yeah, Big Vaughn who listens. Right? Yeah. Or Mr. Chalk at Power 106 or, you know, the Dirty South guys, you know, Devin Steele. Like, whoever these guys are, like, they're, they're the superheroes. They're, they're the connection to cool in those cities. Yeah. And, like, what I, what I saw was when a Jay-Z went into Memphis, he'd go see Devin Steele. He'd be on the radio station there. He didn't go to the, you know, nobody wanted hip-hop back then. So Devin was, you know... I shouldn't say nobody wanted the fans wanted it, but yeah. corporations didn't get what it was in the early days of hip hop. So these guys were the superstars. So we're like, let's elevate them to a national stage. And we started making these cornerstone CDs and they took off. And then we're like, okay, how do we, you know, tie in a brand to it or this and that? And, um, well, I, how did you tie brands in? Mm -hmm. Um, I had friends at Mecca Clothing, mm -hmm. shout out to Mecca USA. Mm -hmm. And I was like, look, makeup some shirts for us and we'll dress the DJ in the photo shoot and we'll put a strip advertising Mecca, you know, or whatever on the CD and we'll give you shout outs on the CD and give us a few grand to make this thing. So we did that. Hmm. Um, then we went to XXL magazine and hmm. we're like, we'll give you some CDs to give to your clients. Like, you know, we were building this cool thing. We'll get DJs to shout you out on the radio, talk about your covers. We were just like figuring it out. We were and making so you, it up as we went. And you were building up to a point where you would get like a Sprite or like a, yeah. somebody else to, to come in? Exactly. Okay. So, so the way Sprite happened, I'm on a plane coming home from somewhere and I sit down on the plane and there's a magazine that was left in the seat in front of me. I pull it out and it's like Ad Week or Ad Age. And it's this article on this young, um, this young guy, Daryl Cobbin. And he's in a suit and he's looking sharp. And he works at Coca-Cola and accredited him with taking Sprite in the Coca-Cola system from nowhere to like the number two beverage behind Coca-Cola wow. in like 12 months. Like it was like, and he's marketer of the year. So I'm like, oh my God, like this guy, like the Sprite commercials, like I love those commercials. Yeah, you know, like same. In the early, like, so yeah, I'm no like, was like Missy and, and no was, even yeah. before that, oh, okay. like the Nas mm. and Pete Rock, like this was like, this guy tapped into culture and there's a legend story about him that he was in the big suits meeting at the big table at Coca-Cola in Atlanta, and he was running Sprite, this brand that meant nothing to them. Um, just because it was like, it, it yeah. wasn't connected to anything. It was just a, a brand they had. It was one of their 40, 50 brands, and it was probably in the lower half of success, you know, sales rate. And the story goes, the legend goes that, and he was a young marketer, and he stood up in front of the room, he had his business card in front of 25 suits you know, at the company, and um, it was his business card, and he said, "Turnover." He's like, "We're gonna we're gonna make this brand exciting by doing one thing and doing it well." And everyone's like, "Okay." He's like, "Turn over the card," and on the back of the card, it just said "Hip Hop." Wow. And then he presented the culture to them, and he was from Detroit, br like brilliant mind, and and you'll see from my story what he did for me mm -hmm. early in my career. But so I read this article, I'm like, "Oh my God!" Like I, I have to call this guy, so I called him. Cold no call. Cold call. Hey, Coca-Cola, Atlanta, <laughs> Daryl Cobbin. Who's calling Rob Stone? 
doesn't return my call. We had just started doing the CDs. Called him probably three or four more times. It's like you're right back in the office, like making Fuck. those. Yeah. yeah, it's Virgil, but like yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. realizing like I'm not he. He he's not he's busy. He's not it's not me. Right. Like he he doesn't he's not taking my call. It's not like I hate this guy. He doesn't know me. Right. So I put him on the mailing list for the CDs. And probably like by the th- second or third CD, the phone rings. I'm like, Rob Stone, he's like, dude, <laughs> you're on to something. And I'm like, who's this? And and at that point we was we were Mecca was on it. We were now putting t-shirts in the package. The magazine was shipping with the CD. Like we had this whole thing going for our influencers, and I sent him packages. He's like, "Dude, I don't know much about this, but whatever this Cornerstone CD, this mixtape is, you're onto something." Wow. And I'm like, "Who's this?" And he's like, "Daryl Calvin from Coca-Cola." And I'm like, "Oh, oh my God, I'm calling <laughs> you." He's like, "I know." He's like, "Tell me what you do. Tell me what this is." And I had no like I'm a music industry guy, and I'm just like. It's the CD, and we send it out to, you know, we get all these great records from the labels. We put a hot DJ from wherever, you know, on the CD. Then we ship it out around the country. Everybody's curious to hear how the DJ's flipping the records and playing. And it's helping us get music out there. And very quiet in a different way than Puffy was. And he's, like, <laughs> taking it in. And he just, I'm saying, I went into this whole thing, and I'm like, we have these DJs around the country. And he's asking a few questions. I'm like, yeah, 500 DJs. We try to talk to them all, but this is like this has become really important to them, or becoming important. We tied Mecca in, and and he's like, "What's your point of difference?" And I'm like, "I wasn't a marketing guy," and I'm like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "Well, what makes you different than other agencies?" And I'm like thinking to myself, "We're not an agency. What are you (laughs) talking? We're a promotion company, marketing company." And he's like, "Look, he's like." If you're going to do business with Coca-Cola, you need to have a point of difference and you need to articulate it the right way. He's like, you don't just have 500 DJs around the country that you talk to. He's like, you have the ear of 500 conduits to the masses. Is that what you then told him and then he gave you money? (laughs) Someone else. So, But literally, I remember the moment I have the piece of paper, I start taking notes. Like this guy's like dropping... Some serious, like, this became the foundation of our business at the time. And he's like, well, you have a 500 conduits to the masses. They're the voice boxes to reach today's consumer in the most authentic way. And then he's like, and you're pointed different. And 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 I have a page of notes from him. And he's like, look, he's like, they moved me off Sprite. He's like, I'm I'm handling Coca-Cola now. And of course, like, my mind goes like, Coca-Cola is bigger than Sprite. I'm like, but he's like. What you're doing is not right for Coke. He like knew right away. He's like, but there's a young brand director on Sprite, and his name's Rohan Oza, which you might know or might not know. Um, Rohan's super successful today, but Rohan was like the young in, in charge of Sprite, took over Sprite for Daryl, and he's like, I'm gonna get put you in touch with him, and he's like, he'll he'll he's like, talk to him and let me know how it goes. He said if he doesn't hire you off the record, my friend runs Mountain Dew for Pepsi. This is like greatest guy. This is like first conversation. He, was, he loved what we were doing. Yeah. He's like, he'll hire you. Holy shit. So I call Rohan and we connect and we're talking. And I just remember Ro- Rohan's a very, he was, 
he was pretty arrogant back then, but in a good, super bright. And mm-hmm. like it's gone on like he was one of the brilliant minds behind Vitamin Water and wow. the Fifty Cent deal. Yeah, and the, like he really put those things together. And you've um, worked with him like a bunch over the years, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've remained friends. I was just with him recently, and he's gone on to do like amazing things for brands. Um, from buy the drink buy to mm-hmm. like Kensington's, like he, he's involved in so much shit. I can't keep up with him, and he's amazing. He's on Shark Tank now. Um, By the way, I saw the, the, a commercial for the first time today. Justin Timberlake's involved with buy now. I was just like, oh, all right. well, he was. I think originally. Oh, is that right? I, I think he's an investor, and I think they use that song "Bye Bye Bye." Oh. I mean, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was yeah. going to make that joke, but I guess they already did. So, yeah, yeah. on point. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, so yeah, so I speak to Rohan. And understand, I'm I'm in the record business, working with tight budgets for artists because the music industry is going through this thing, and I'm getting maybe ten, fifteen grand to be involved with these projects on the music side. And Rohan's like, "Tell me what you do," and I like start telling him. We got this network of DJs, conduits to the masses. We can help get <laughs> yeah. your word out, like the everything. He just told, yeah, 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 just yeah, like, yeah. But that's what Daryl does great. He contextualized it and he mm. put it in like digestible form mm-hmm. for corporate America. Yeah, for you to reuse. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, long story short, Rohan's like, interesting. All right, uh, we have this five deadly women campaign. Um, I only have 50 grand for you. Does that work? <laughs> and I was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, think I, I, might, I think I might have paused a little longer and said, that's all you have. Is right, like right. I kind of played it. And I'm like, like Steve oh, Rifkin okay. shit. Right. Yeah. Rohan hired us and we hit it off and we did great work for him. And he went on to Powerade and other things and vitamin water. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how we got into the corporate thing. Uh, and the light bulb went off realizing like, this can be a great resource for brands, uh, I mean, for artists and for the music. And, like, artists can really help push brands if they're passionate. And, and honestly, I think we do it right because we understand, like, what the artist is about. And I think a lot of brands do it wrong and mm-hmm. have continued to do it wrong. And, and we've seen brands shit the bed on that stuff. Yeah. So, But have you ever... Because that's, like, a tricky line to sort of, like, you know, navigate, right? Like, because sometimes it can be, like, well, the brand is getting more out of this than the artist, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you play that? I've seen it evolve, by the way. Like, in the 90s, the checks weren't what the checks are now for corporate America. Like, I know there are artists that won't have conversations unless it's seven figures, and they're right. Uh-huh. Like, if you're going to make someone 50x or, or 50, 100 million dollars because of what you've built, and that's your person. That's that's all you got. Like you're mm-hmm. an artist. That's what you have. And you're gonna put that next to a brand to let the brand shine. How could they tell you you're only worth half a million bucks or a million bucks? Like the artist should get paid an exorbitant, like a f- not even exorbitant, a fair amount of money, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, especially when there are festivals and we know what Drake and Kendrick, you know, get paid for one hour on a stage mm-hmm. now. So. If they're going to tie themselves up for a year to a brand, they better love that brand. It better be part of their life, and they better get paid. Like you know, and, and they're going to make money for that if it's done right. That brand is going to win big time. So how does how does Cornerstone, a promotions and marketing company, turn into half of uh, that company and half a print magazine? Cornerstone, I started in June of '96 when I left Arista. We started the fader a few years later, and it was again, it was you know me and Lee sitting around Lee Harrison, and we were talking about 
this idea. We, it was at the time there was like this internet boom going on in the mm-hmm. like late nineties where all like UBO and some other websites were getting big money to create like this content machine. No one knew what was going on. And we're like, we, we should do something in that space. And we were going to start, you know, the fader.com as like a DJ only website for like DJs to check in. Um, and that, and then we ended up going, how are we going to promote this thing? Well, let's print something. What are we going to print? Let's find, you know, let's figure it out. So, um, by the way, I never realized that it was the fader, like a DJ. Really? He he did. Yeah, I definitely did. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And most of America that's that me. has heard that's of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it is. It's, it comes from the DJ, the right fader. On. So yeah, so and the whole concept is a DJ is able to go seamlessly from one record to the next. We were going cross culture, which right. was at the time there was Rolling Stone and there was Vibe, and like Vibe didn't cover the rock artists, and the you know Rolling Stone didn't cover the hip hop artists. Like right. that came later, and you know Fader was doing it first. You know we put. Um, Beck and D'Angelo on the cover. You know, we, we did a lot of things, I think, first in, in that space because it came from a pure place. It came from, like, a love of music. And we're like, John was into that. Like, our, our second cover, our first cover was Funk Master Flex, and we just asked the question, is he the most powerful DJ in the world? Which, Spoiler alert. He was, and he was, he was like, yeah, he was, you know, especially in the hip-hop space. What was it like getting him for the first... Uh First issue. He gave us five minutes. <laughs> a friend of mine introduced me to Jonathan Mannion, who Shout was out a to young, John Mannion. Yeah, that's right, young yeah. photographer at the time, who on a handshake was like, "Yeah, I told him the concept." He's like, "Yeah, I'll, I'll go shoot him." <laughs> he literally shot him on. Here's we talked about this magazine for like months. I remember I even I, this is years after I had met Dave Mays, and we used to play ball at Basketball City, and like. I pitched the idea to Dave, who had the source, and, so, and Dave was like, a magazine for DJs? That's like, that's not going to work. So I was like, oh, okay. Like, I'll <laughs> shut up. Like, he's, he knows this. Like, right, right. So we talked about it for months after that. Lee was passionate about it. John's like, we, sh- we should probably do it. And then at one point, I was just like, let's stop fucking talking about it. And it was like a Thursday. I'm like, if we don't have it made by Sunday, we'll never talk about it again. Wow. Like, it was just like one of those things, like enough. Like, and I called Mannion. I'm like, I heard you're a great photographer. Here's the vision. Would you shoot it for us? Uh, we got Flex to agree to do it tomorrow at like 4 o'clock. And he literally shot him out on the street in front of his studio. And, at, and it was filmed then. It wasn't you know, digital. As, he, as the film was coming out of the camera, his assistant was throwing him up to like the third floor <laughs> to develop the pictures to make our deadlines of like getting this thing printed. Um, and then he shot the next four covers and the the next cover was when it was like our moment where we realized something special is going on. We, we got milk studios as a favor. So we shot the cover in milk studios and we just, we had this, this incredible, uh, girl who worked with us, Sarah Newkirk, who's now like running William Morris entertainment. She's amazing and was amazing back then. And. I got, like, my passion was, you know, I had worked with DJ Premier and, and Guru and Gangstar. So I'm like, I could get Premier for the cover. Let's just get the best artist we can get. And then, uh, you know, I think through Mike Kaiser, I got Run from Run DMC. And then John and Sarah got Zach from Rage Against the Machine, who wow. at the time was, like, anti establishment He was the shit. Yeah. You know, and that music still stands the test of time. For sure. So ahead of his time, like, yeah. Rage Against the Machine. 
shout out to Zach. Mm-hmm. But we put the three of them on the cover. We did the shoot. We didn't know what to expect. Mannion shot it. He's like, yeah, I'll do that handshake. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I love shooting. I'll, I'll shoot it. We didn't know what we were doing at the time. you know. And then by that time, I had brought Jeff Staple of Staple Design. I gave him office state, space because we had like 8,000 square feet. And we had this room that was all windows that nobody was in. And it was like depressing. I had to walk to my office <laughs> every day. And it was like a dark room. Yeah. Yeah. And we called it the fishbowl. <laughs> so I'm like, I met him somewhere. Or Lee introduced us. And I'm like, why don't you just take the office? And he brought like five kids in there. And all of a sudden, like shit's up on the wall. And like... You know, he's explaining design to me. And it was like, it was eye-opening. It was like amazing. And so he's designing the issue. But Lee, um, I'm sorry, Mannion shot it. I just remember that feeling. Actually, John had to miss the shoot because his wife gave birth to his son that day. So John wasn't there. Congratulations. (laughs) Hey, Kevin Cohn, we see you. Bard College. Um, So yeah, so John wasn't there for it. And I just remember when like, Premier walked in, it was cool because I knew him and I was just excited. You know, when Run walked in, <laughs> this is the guy who got me through my cancer. And yeah. I, I had other times I met him, but I just remember being like, I'm in the presence of like greatness, yeah. like Premier and Run. And then Zach walked in. And like, you never know how artists sure. are going to be, but there was like an instant, like, I remember Run was a little suspicious of it. Premier, trust me. Run, I don't know if Run knew what he was doing there, mm-hmm. like, honestly. Mm-hmm. Right. But then they just sat on the couch the three of them before as we were setting up the shoot and they were going to do the interview that day too and all of a sudden you could just see they were like getting along and and, and there was like kind of magic happening and then we're doing the shoot and I'm like calling John and being like this is fucking incredible I can't believe we have run Zach for me like this is insane like what what, like this thing doesn't exist like we printed 10,000 copies of the first one and handed them out like this doesn't happen I hang up with John and the door swings open to our studio and next door they were shooting a cover for like some big magazine like like a major pop magazine and it was Mariah Carey looked in to see what was going on in our space and I was like yeah it was just like a moment you know so I'm like holy shit we're like you're like I almost worked at Crave Records (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) right exactly so that was like incredible and then um the cover came out the the story came out and we came up I think it might have been Lee but we were riffing on it, and we ended up calling it the Three Kings, wow. which was just like it was a powerful statement at that time because they really were. You had the king of rock in in Ron. You had Premier, who was the king of beats, and you had you know the king of rage. Like yeah. this guy was like anti-establishment. It was just it was so important in a sense, and like the cover's amazing. But I knew it was big when. Premier and Zach hit it off so well that they ended up going on tour together. And that's when I think we had the moment of, holy shit, like, they wouldn't be on tour if we didn't do this cover. Because they, they might not, maybe they would have, but they might not have connected. Right. It, it happened when it happened because of the fader. When did you first consider yourself a publisher? I swear to God, I don't think we, we do. I don't think we've ever treated the magazine as a magazine, because if we did we wouldn't be in business today. Hmm. Like you'd see spin went out of business and yeah. all, all these guys stopped printing. Like we've never treated this thing. And I think that's the beauty of it, that it's never been, it was never in the magazine. It was always a platform of lifestyle, of, ex- of experiences, of events, of cool people, of not giving a fuck, breaking the rules. Like it was just different. Like the fader just always was different. Mm. Um, 
You know, and then we had like Outkast, Manion shot the next cover, Outkast and Eminem. We went into Chinatown with Eminem. Like it was incredible. And then M does this thing. We have this clip. I'll send it to you. Maybe you'll play it on the yeah, air. But yeah. where M bends words and we just had, no one had, you didn't have cell phones back then with cameras. Someone on like, I think the flip cam had just come out. So someone had like a little flip cam and it's like a horrible quality. <laughs> but it's M in between the shoot. And man, you know, like amazing photos, like the dead chickens in the window. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like famous sh- shots. Yeah. Um, and they actually used our cover in 8 Mile in or in one of the videos. I think it was the, one of the videos has our poster hanging in there, which was really cool That's for dope. us at the time. Do you too. want to send a C&D? <laughs> no, no, no. The M put us on the map with that <laughs> issue. But um, M... And we have the recording of it. I'll send it to you. But it's just him taking the word fader and playing with the word fader to where he's going, a dur, that is fade, fader. And then he's like, Durst, Fred Durst. Like you got to see into his mind of how he just bends these words into other words. Wow. It was really cool. I'll send it to yeah, you guys. Yeah. yeah it's really cool. Um, but those were the four cards. And, and, and I still hadn't paid Jonathan because like we didn't have money to do shit. So at this point, it was like the fourth cover, and I just, John, Anthony, and I are like, let's, we got to do something, but I don't think we could give him enough money to make him feel good about it. Right. So we literally had mentioned that he was like looking for a computer, so we just bought him the best like Apple computer. <laughs> and, and yeah, that's literally how the fader started was, you know, on, on a handshake with Mannion. Um, how about the first time you met Kanye West? Wow. First time I met Kanye... Um, he was just a producer. Chris Atlas. Shout to Chris Atlas. Yes. Yeah. Everyone loves Chris Atlas at Warner Brothers. But he was at Tommy Boy, and then he came over and ran Urban Music for us at Cornerstone. Um, he brought Al Branch. Shout out to Al Branch. Al Branch, yeah. yep. And, and Kanye up. Mm-hmm. And Kanye, again, was just producing for Rockefeller. He was signed to Rockefeller as an artist, but hadn't put out any music. And Chris, Al, and I were talking and this guy Kanye standing in the office and we knew who he was because you know but um we're talking he's not saying anything and then and we're in my office which is like the corner office on the ninth floor at, at Fader Cornerstone and Kanye just goes out of nowhere he's like hey can I can I play you some music and I was like yeah of course <laughs> like help you and I go to take like a CD from him he's like no 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 I'll, I'll put it in like he wouldn't even hand me his CD <laughs> I don't know if he was being courteous or whatever. Yeah. He didn't hand me the CD. Yeah, well, like, you saw uh, what you yeah. did with the Biggie, the Biggie stuff. Tape. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So he, um, he puts it in the CD player and the song starts playing and it's, it's through the wire. And I think we're going to hear his vocals on it and it's the instrumental <laughs> and he starts rhyming all over it. And he starts not just rhyming, but like he's performing and he's like loud and it's it's focused like you talk about focus, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Focus like like it's that's like Madison Square Garden, twenty thousand people, and he's going for it. And not not because of us, but that was Kanye, and he went for it and was through the wire. And all of a sudden, like five people, like three four people, come looking in my <laughs> office, like what's going on? Then a few more people, and at the time we were probably like thirty people that worked there. Next thing you know, thirty people are like jammed into my doorway watching him do Through the Wire and Jesus Walks, um, sweating, and we're all like, everyone's just like mesmerized, nodding their head. 
Um, so it's a contagious energy. It's not like, oh my what God. is this weirdo doing? It was a moment in music. For, it was a moment in Fader. He performs. He leaves. And Knox Robinson, who like was our editor-in-chief, is like, that's our cover. And that's, that's literally, I think, I think Knox walked down the street with him doing like part of the interview or whatever. I was like, oh my God, this guy's the next cover. Who are some of the most important people that you worked with at uh, Cornerstone and Fader throughout the years? Important in what? what important sense? to the success of the whole company. Well, like, Daryl Cobbin, without a doubt, gave us our first script. Op- <laughs> yeah, our yeah. first script. Yeah. And, and an opening to corporate America. Um, <clears throat> but then, yeah, I think on the art, like Pharrell plays, has played such a big role because we've done a lot of things with him um, early on that really helped from his first cover, you know, with him and Chad. Um, so, yeah, I think Pharrell. And, like, again, the advantage of an agency, you know, that works with, like, corporations, being around artists, you think different. We mm-hmm. never got stuck in this rut of, like, how to do stuff the MBA, you know, mm-hmm. business way. Like, mm-hmm. we did it from the culture yeah. way, and we're connected to the culture. And, and we walked away from a lot of deals. You know, there were a lot of companies we wouldn't work with if we couldn't get it right. And that was a power, you know, to, to be able to have something fader that was so pure and honest and we didn't fuck with the editorial and let our editorial staff determine it and not be beholden to, like, brands paying for stuff and having to, you know, like, yeah. that was just pure and it's always been that way. And Cornerstone was able to thrive um, with great creatives and where we are today, you know, working with with big brands like MLS, you know, doing the creative for them. Mm-hmm. Um, the North Face, we're doing some great work with those guys. So, um, you know, we, we've worked on the Sprite Obey Your Verse years later, have gone, you know, back work with Sprite. So there's just some campaigns we're so proud of and, and you know, feel like culturally they fit. Um, Converse was like an incredible client where we built a recording studio. Yeah. You know, we had over a thousand bands record for free in a studio. Jeff Cottrell, who was the CMO, had the vision and let us execute it. And he took money out of his print and TV budget and said, I'm going to fund a community service studio that artists can apply to and get a top... Was that Rubber Tracks? Rubber Tracks in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So... I mean, and it got to the point where, like, major artists wanted to record there. Yeah. So we had Bono yeah. come in, and we had Questlove, you know, doing yeah. music. And Mob D, I remember walking in one day, and, and Havoc and Prodigy went in there, like, working on something. Like, it was, it became this incredible community. Yeah. And it was, it was, you know, an idea, and it was just, you plant the seed, you water it, and you don't try to cheat. You kind of, you just let it kind of, you let the artists drive it. Yeah. And it, it, it's a really, and it was... Huge for Converse. It was huge credibility for Converse. Who were some of the most impactful hires that you made over at Fader through the years? Um, Alex Wagner was, has been incredible. Duncan Cooper, our, our current uh, editor-in-chief. Um, Knox Robinson, Eddie Brannon in the early days. Like really, really gave the Fader like a voice and a lens to look through things. You know, mm-hmm. they really did. They really, Lee, I mean, Lee Harrison, who early days, you know, we just like really had a tight line of like quality, authenticness, um, and trying to be about the artists, you know. And um, what are your best uh, Fader Ford stories? Man, you guys being there. This past <laughs> yeah, year yeah, was great. huge. I, yeah, I think that's where we got to hang out. That's, that is. We've shot the DJ enough, by the way. That's right. Yeah. Enough was in the house. Yeah. 
favorite was probably biggest biggest and favorite are different, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, well, one of them was probably biggest and favorite, but I remember Glow in the Dark tour happening, and Kanye was. If you remember the glow in the dark tour, it was him on stage by himself. It was a very singular performance, huge, incredible concert. He had just done all of that. And through Chris Atlas and Al Branch, we were able to convince Kanye to come down to Fader Fort in Austin. And I'm forgetting the year, but I mean, you guys can check it because it seems like I'm getting my shit mixed up. 1999. Yeah. (laughs) I think it might have been 2009, maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe, Mm -hmm. Right. Whatever it was. He comes down to do a surprise performance, unannounced, but he's doing it as good music. And it's not about him. It was about his whole crew. Yeah. So it was like, it was, I just remember sitting there with John and Sherry Timmons from Levi's, who Sherry, this was her vision too with us, like to build this fader for it. And from the early days, supported it and trusted us and let us program it. And you know, Kanye came down and, and in Kanye fashion, it's a Levi's venue and he was wearing a Lee vest that we couldn't get him out of because none of us like could say, hey, could you take that off? And, but he wore a Lee vest, but whatever. No one cared because the performance was amazing. But Kanye was on stage and there's footage of this on, on YouTube, but having so much fun with his artists. Like yeah. it wasn't his show, but Common was on stage and Consequence and GLC, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, and it was, it was, and Erica Badu joined them, and like they were just riffing and having fun, and it was, it was just magical seeing That's this so guy, good. and he was, and he was smiling, like you didn't really see Kanye smile, right, then. and you know, and then he gave us the to the Fader magazine, we love you all, like in one of his songs, and it was just, it was like a great moment. I was that was pretty cool, but I think um, one of the top performances I was talking about it today was Scooter, not Scooter Braun, but Scooter Gary Clark's manager. Gary Clark had one of the most like mind blowing performances. He's just an incredible talent. He stood on stage with his guitar and he just crushed the audience. Like as the sun was going down and everyone, it just was like a euphoric moment there. And we've had a few of those. Mm. Um, the biggest fort we had was 2016, and we were able to convince um, Drake to come down and do an OVO show. So we had Maji Jordan right. and guys, you know, Party Next Door and, and Drake came out and he did six songs and he announced Summer 16 on the Fader Fort stage. Wow. And um, that wouldn't have happened if we didn't, I, I think, if we didn't have the credibility and the support, we supported him. We gave Drake his first, you know, magazine cover. Jonathan Mannion shot that as mm-hmm. well. He took, you know, he we made it very personal. We shot him at his house. We went, Jonathan went with him to see his grandmother when he told her for the first time, like, Grandma, I have a record deal. And Jonathan's there and has, like, photos of his grandmother, you know, God bless her, like, holding Drake's hand. And, and, and Drake is like, Grandma, I have a, you know, a record deal. And she's like, really? And he's like, yeah, like, a lot of money, like, millions of dollars. And she's like, a million dollars? <laughs> and he's like, no, Grandma, millions <laughs> of dollars. Like Jonathan like tears up when he tells the story because it was so touching. Yeah. And Drake's holding her and it was just like an amazing So I think that's what the fader is about. Drake has gone on, you know, we have him saying how the fader let him be him mm. early on when nobody was doing that. Like yeah. and that's always again, we get out we set it up and get out of the way. It's like what you see from who we cover is what they are. Um so yeah. So you're okay, you're you're somebody who um you know, you, you grew up working class, uh, Long Island. Yep. You 
saw, you know, you faced really heavy circumstances as a young man. Um, and you went on to not do what your father did, but create your own business um, and then be very successful at, at your own business. What did it mean uh, to your father to see you create your own thing and succeed? I, I truly appreciate that question. It meant a lot, and he had a lot to do with it. I mean, I named the company Cornerstone. Obviously, my last name Stone, but his trucking company was Carl Stone Trucking. Um, and just to be clear, it's not my own business. John and I are partners, right? Sure. I'm just, yeah. just yeah. like mm-hmm. John's yeah. like the most amazing partner. But John um, isn't here, <laughs> right? So, yeah, exactly. So my business. <laughs> um, no, but we we've built the business together, and it's and it is and it is an amazing relationship of just like musical tastes and how we have each other's back and trust each other and then have an incredible team from Andy Cohn who runs the theater to Anthony Holland to just the team around us is incredible. Um, but yeah, like the early days, like I was in situations that I hadn't, you know, I had to give my dad the details and and he would come back to me and kind of tell me the steps I needed to take, whether, you know, I was dealing with shady people or whatever it was, but he had Shouts the experience. To yeah, 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 yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he, he <laughs> helped me. He didn't help me through the M&M situation. Paul <laughs> did. Paul Rosenberg did. But uh, there was no M&M situation. But yeah, like my dad just had an incredible intuition and read on people. So it just helped me throughout my career. And, um, you know, yeah, like he, I, one of the things that stuck with me my whole life is he said – the best gift you could give me is doing better than I ever did. And I just, I think about that all the time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my dad passed in March of 15. So, um, yeah, it's just, he's an amazing man. I think of him every day in every situation. He's helped me so much. And you're you're a father now. I am a father of, uh, my dad was an identical twin, and I'm a father of two identical, well, identical twins. Yeah, Yeah. I should say two identical twins. Yeah, yeah. Identical twins. How's that going? It's going. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's going. They're big. They're strong. They rip shit apart Good. in the apartment. Yeah, they're nice. boys. They yeah. hit each other. They laugh. <laughs> they cry. They, they, they're great. They're tough. That's good. What they're kind tough. of father are you? Um, I think I'm a great... I, I love it. So I, I think I'm a great father. And I think I'm in a position where I can be there almost, almost as much as I want to. You know what I mean? So, like, obviously... Having a business and running the business is is really important, but I also I understand like my dad set a very high bar, so that's very important to me, um, and also to pass that on to them. You know, like it's important for me to the lessons I have in my head um, are very important. That's something I'm working on in in the physical sense of a book mm-hmm. um, that I'm putting together of some of these stories, mm-hmm. like the One More Chance stories and. <laughs> Other story, like other really amazing stories that I know as I'm an older father, since I'm not a 25 year old, 30 year old father, by the time I'm able to tell them these stories, I'll forget the details. As you can see, I'm forgetting <laughs> yeah. details now. But if I put it, if I document it and uh, write it down, it'd be great. So I'm working with this guy, Casey, from that's a fast company writer who um, interviewed John and I once, and we just hit it off, and he's helping me put together. That's know, awesome. This book that will be out soon. So that's really dope. Yeah. Um, I am a little upset that you're saving some stories for the book. They should <laughs> yes. all be coming out for for yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. There are definitely some some save stories. Um, but, do you want to tell the Lior story? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because that, yeah, I do. 
It's not a bad Lior story. No, no, no. no. Yeah, we love yeah, great Lior. Yeah. We love Lior. So. Le- look, Lior was a hero of mine coming up in the music business. Like, and like this force of nature and partners with Russell yeah. and behind every big act in the 90s. Like everything. Like the created the hip hop business. So I was coming up SBK first, then it became EMI, then I went to Arista, and then I was competing obviously with Def Jam and Mike Kaiser and, <laughs> and those guys. And I got to know Lior, but very surface, like not very deep. I didn't know how much he knew of me. I knew everything about him, obviously. Right, you guys weren't going to Cafe Clooney, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. just like kibitzing. Yeah, right. No, yeah. like if he said, like, if he said hello to me, that was like, it was monumental. Yeah. You know, like, hey, like even like a head nod somewhere. Yeah. Like I was like, oh my God, it was like Lior said hello to me. So when I started Cornerstone, one of the first things I did was there's the magic show in Vegas. And I went to the magic show, which is really interesting because when you work for labels, everything's paid for, you know, your flights, your travel, your business travel. That's different. By the way, everyone should understand this is not a magic show like it's like um, Penn and Teller. (laughs) It is magic, the convention. convention. I sort of wish that you went to a (laughs) Penn and Teller show. (laughs) And I saw Lior juggling. It's crazy. (laughs) Put his head (laughs) in the mouth of a tiger. No. So I go and and everyone's displaying their their clothing. And, you know, everyone. Mecca's there. Anichi. Like, every every big company mm-hmm. on that side. But to, like, Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren. Like, this is the big yeah. show. And they sell, I think, I think the number was, like, something like 70, 80% of their merchandise to, you know, all the buyers are there picking what they're going to supply their stores with. So, I'm near the Fat Farm booth. And Fat Farm was hot. And he, Russell had this huge booth. Like, amazing. And I'm walking by it. And I'm just like, wow, this is so cool. Like, Fat Farm, like, this is Russell Simmons. And um, and I hadn't met Russell a couple of times, but I remember Lior was there, and he's talking to Russell, and out of nowhere, he's like, Rob Stone. And I'm like, holy <laughs> shit, Lior, like, no, like, he know, like, okay. Yeah. And he's like, I need to talk to you. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, this is like, I have Cornerstone, I'm working with labels, I'm working with Puffy, I'm working with L.A. Reid, you know, I'm working. And now Lior is going to murder you. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, now I'm thinking, okay, Leo wants to sit down and like I'm doing good work. He heard like what I'm doing. He saw what I did at Arista. Like, okay, like he's going to sit down. He wants to like bring me in to start working Def Jam records. This is great. He's like, meet me back here in like an hour or whatever time it was. So I'm yeah. like, okay. And I, I swear to God, there's no way Lior remembers this because yeah. like it means nothing. It meant nothing to him. But Maybe, everything you. Yeah, it was like the, um, this is like, I, I was nervous. I'm like, I'm going to sit with Lior. Like, okay, I got to get my shit together. Kind of like the puffy feeling, right? Yeah. Like, but I had gone into like a room to get radiation, so it wasn't too serious. Right, right, mm-hmm. right, like, right. There's that balance in my head of like, yeah, I can't yeah how bad this. could this right. be? Yeah, yeah. right. It, 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 was, it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you asked about the question before? Yeah. yeah. yeah the obvious answer. <laughs> so I sit, so I walk up to Fat Farm there a few minutes early. Lior's talking, big personality. He sits down. Rob, come sit with me. So, okay. <laughs> I sit with him. I love the guy. And he just looks at me and he goes, I swear to God, what the fuck did you do? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't even know what he's talking. Like, I have no idea what he's talking. I'm like, it's a strong like, opener. Yeah. Yeah. Got me. Yeah. <laughs> I got my attention. If like he didn't know. Already. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? Like, what, what, what did I do? And he's like, 
you were the biggest name in the music in in promotion. Everyone was talking about Rob Stone and he's going to be an executive and nobody talks about you anymore. I don't hear your name. You don't, and some of it might have been for effect, but or it might have been his real opinion, or it might have just been like, let me fuck with this young kid who thinks he's the shit. Oh my God. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, <laughs> and he's going, and he's, no one talks about you. I don't hear your name anymore. And I literally start going in my head, like, holy shit, what the fuck did I do? <laughs> yeah. Like, what did I do? Like, I, he's right. Like, <laughs> a real existential crisis yeah, thanks to Leroy like, Cohen. Yeah. And I'm sitting, I'm like, and he's going off on me, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, Holy shit! Like my company's six months old, five, whatever it is, it's young, and right. I'm like, oh my god! Like, and I'm like, I'm like, well, Lior, what, like, <laughs> what, what did you do? <laughs> like, I literally put it on. I'm like, what did you do? I'm like, like, look at you, you, you know, like, and he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, look what you're doing. Like, you started your own company. I'm like, you have Def Jam. I'm like, Fat Farm with what? Like, this is incredible what you've built. And he goes, I had no choice. He's like, no one wanted to hire me. And it kind of makes sense, right? Like, I'm like, okay. And then I'm like, but as I'm like thinking about it and he's saying, I'm like, yeah, you slept on floors. Like, I've read your stories. I know you traveled. You broke down barriers because you believed in something. I'm like, I believe in, in this. And like, I started getting my, my, my legs under me. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I believe in what I'm doing. And I'm like, but you're saying because someone was going to pay me money to work for them that I should do that instead of follow like my course and what I believe like what if Cornerstone's bigger than Def Jam and that's when it got the conversation got really silly <laughs> but like I, but I was like seriously what yeah. happens if I build something that's bigger than Def Jam which, yeah. you know um and he kind of didn't have a good answer for it but he he left it with like you made a mistake type of vibe wow. like and it wasn't rude yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I think yeah, he yeah. I think part of it like Lior mentors and like totally. and speaks his mind there's yes. no question about that and saw all of it and i think he really did see for me that i could have been like a leading executive in the music business i think that was an honest read that he was giving me like he was me and drew have this thing we call breakdowns mm-hmm. and it's like no hard feelings i'm about to give you a breakdown because i saw you do this and i'll that and, and we'll go in yeah. and mm-hmm. break each other like but it's healthy, yeah. right? Like it's like no hard feelings, but we'll give the breakdown. Like Lior gave me a genuine breakdown, I think, which yeah. I promise you he probably didn't think of two minutes later. Right. But I've thought of it for 20 plus years because it's motivated me. And, and look, Lior, to his credit, has, has done unbelievably, you know, and, you know, we've built and we've done great stuff together now. Like, you know, when we gave Migos the cover, mm-hmm. they won 300. Um, young thug, Lior, like he's made a lot of shit happen for us. Um, he's given us a lot of credit for stuff, you know, recently. And but man. next time you see him, though, it's on. <laughs> no, next time I see him, I'm gonna say, Lior, what the fuck did you do? <laughs> I never hear YouTube. Your name anymore. Yeah. What, what is YouTube? <laughs> uh, and, and it's exciting to see what he's doing. And yeah. like we're, we're having this conversation. He just had his his conversation with the you know with uh, Charlemagne. Yeah, the Breakfast Club. Breakfast Club and shout out to Breakfast Club, but. But he dropped a lot of really interesting points about what YouTube's trying to do and the changing industry. And, like, he proved it with 300. Like, don't, he said it, like, don't count Lior out ever. Yeah. And the guy, again, focus, intensity, balls, like, you know, he'll get it done. Like, it's he will just get a it shame done. that we never hear his name anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Rob, this has been an amazing breakdown. And uh, we're so honored to have you up here. 
all the all the work that you put in on the volleyball court, all the work that <laughs> you put in. Well, you know what? You never made it as a football player, but otherwise, pretty damn great. So thank you for this. Uh, no problem. Thank you for having me. What you guys are doing is great because you, I think you take the edge <laughs> off of the interview and you make it enjoyable. I love your film review show that you guys thank are doing. You thank Shout you very much. Shout out to the Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Coco, I watch it probably four times a week <laughs> with my kids and it will never be the same. That's right, that's right. If you haven't listened to the Coco <laughs> review, please listen to it and go watch the movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, amazing. Thank you. you guys. Thanks very much. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this new episode of A Waste Time with It's The Real Jeff. If people want to find out more about us and our travels and our podcast and our music and our book and our live shows in New York City, Atlanta, and soon in other cities. If people want to know anything about It's The Real, I-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-A-L, Jeff, where can they go? You can always go to itstherial.com. Well, that makes sense. Oh, <laughs> alone. Um, you can always go to itstherial.com to find all our updates on us. You can also go and search for our podcast. Yeah, our do podcast that. episodes are all available on SoundCloud and iTunes and Spotify and wherever people listen to podcasts. That's where it is. Great. Yeah, the Stitcher. I don't think it's the Stitcher. Stitcher. No. Yes. Yeah, it's there too. Good. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at it's the real, Facebook at it's the real, Instagram at it's the real. Go look at all of our pictures from our travels down in utah and arizona trust us they're dope pictures i like the guy who was just like hey did ravy b go on vacation with you guys because the pictures were that good and the answer is yes it's yes yeah raven was there yeah she, Shout uh, to raven. she left the tour <laughs> with jay-z and beyonce to come to utah and arizona that's right i would also say you can find our music yeah on all streaming platforms it is called teddy bear fresh our album yeah who's that aovante hit us and said that he started his week off the right way by listening to waco yeah. off teddy bear fresh mm-hmm. i like that I, I like that. I like that. I like that. Carl. <laughs> um, I would also say you can find me on Fortnite. Yep. I'm at it's, it's the real. I'm not good. Do you think that you're worse off after a 10 day vacation? Yeah, I haven't oh, yeah. played in a while. Yes, yeah, the yeah. answer is yes. Or am I like so? I'm so refreshed that I'm gonna be really good. Hey, there's only one way to find out. It's yeah. it's the real on Fortnite, Jeff. We love the support that you guys have shown to us over the last three years with this podcast, over the last 11 years with It's The Real. We appreciate you guys, and we know that you appreciate when we let you know how much we appreciate you. Mm. Smokes once. Yeah. So, Jeff, who do you want to shout out here on the podcast today? I want to shout out a few people who have bought our book and let us know they bought our book. Yeah, Rhyme Book in stores right now. And there's a lot of people who have, but I don't have them all in front of me. And so, you know, I'm leaving out a ton of people. A ton of people, but here's uh, five from the top of our Instagram DMs. Okay. Uh, Nur Ozdemar. Yeah, shout out to Nur. El Katuk. Shout out to Ray. Jonathan Benavente. Shout out to John. Beat Maker. Shout out to Beat Maker down there in Tampa. And it's BK. Shout out to Brian Kraft down there, also in Florida. Yeah. Guys, maybe they know each other. We really appreciate the fact that everybody has been pushing our book, Rhyme Book, to the top of the blank sheet music charts. Mm-hmm. Let's keep it up there. Yeah, there's a lot of competition, so we really need to That's rally the troops. Right. So, yeah. Guys, go buy Rhyme Book. It's, it's a great project. We're so honored to have done it, and we're honored that you guys have bought it. All right, you need to shout people out because I have to go get Chinese food before the place closes. All right, Jeff, I want to shout out two people who we got to see down in Salt Lake City, our friends, Emily O'Connor and Jake O'Connor, who were so 
welcoming of us down in their corner of the United States and so open with uh, suggestions on places to eat and things to do. Yep. And Red Iguana. Red Iguana. Shout out to our friends, Emily and Jake, who provided us with great conversation and a lot of tips on what to do down in Salt Lake City and beyond. And we just appreciate them as good, funny, fun people. And they were so nice to welcome us into Utah. Yes. And we also have to shout out one person before we leave uh, to go to the Chinese place. Yeah. Which is Joseph Smith. <laughs> Joseph Smith, who started the Mormon religion. That's right. <laughs> shout out to Joseph Smith. What's <laughs> up? From Utah and Arizona to the top of the blank sheet music charts. As always, guys, now for real, for real, Carl <laughs> Malone. We'll see you guys.